0: Everybody. Welcome to Directors Club. My name is Bill Ackerman. I'm the uh, guest co host for this episode. I'm going to be talking about the director Ken Russell, um, somebody I've been interested in since I was a teenager, and uh, I've never really had a long form conversation on any podcast about him before. And so uh, I reached out to a friend of mine who I know is a fellow fan, and uh, I don't think we've ever talked about Ken Russell really at length before, even though we've talked about film a million times. So, my guest today is Sam Deacon. Uh, she's the author of The Legacy of World War II in, in European Art House Cinema, Fritz Lang's M. She's the editor of Lost Girls, the phantasmagorical cinema of Jean Roland. Uh, She was the associate editor of Diablo League magazine, where she wrote a series of essays on Ken Russell's BBC films. You may have read her in Senses of Cinema, Fangoria, Cinephiles. Uh, She's contributed to books like Satanic Panic, Scared Sacred, uh, Tonight on a Very Special Episode, uh, Teen Movie Hell. Uh, She's lectured on films. Uh, She was the co-host of Daughters of Darkness. Uh, and Evil Eye, and currently co-hosts uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve. I think in September, you were nearing 130 home video releases, so I don't know what the total will be by the time people listen to this episode, but you've been on a lot of Blu-rays doing commentaries, booklet essays, and video essays. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to talk Ken Russell with you, and I uh, welcome to the show Sam Deacon.
1: Thank you, and I have also... N- I don't think I've ever talked about Ken Russell on... A podcast episode or any commentaries or liner essays, but he was. So you mentioned the Diabolique articles I did, which cover his early career. And weirdly, there used to be this film magazine called Paracinema that covered a lot of like horror and exploitation and cult genre cinema. And they gave me my first ever cover article, which was on the devils. Mm. So i I love it, and I think for a long time it was one of those films that was always my token answer for what's your favorite movie? like I hate picking favorite movies, mm-hmm. but I've been obsessed with it and Ken Russell ever since I first saw it well what was your
0: What was your introduction to Ken Russell?
1: My introduction to Ken Russell was most definitely Tommy, hmm. so I think the order goes Tommy Gothic, and then the Devils. But I didn't know who Ken Russell was until The Devils. Like, I just didn't register him as someone to pay attention to because Tommy was a movie that I think my dad made me watch. Okay. That was also my introduction to Oliver Reed.
0: <laughs> Mine was The Brood. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah.
1: I think I watched them around the same time and was like, who is this, <sighs> this god? <laughs> This demigod.
0: Oh my god, Oliver Reed. Yeah, I think my my first introduction to Ken Russell was Layer of the White Worm came out when I was a kid. And that was the first one I rented. I remember going to the library and asking for the to, to find the Bram Stoker source material with my mom when I was a kid. Oh. I was really into it. And um and then I think I saw I think Salome's Last Dance was the next one I saw. That's crazy. And then I think I saw Gothic. And maybe then altered states, but so I, I, my introduction to him, and then maybe Crimes of Passion. Yeah, altered states was an early one for me too. My impression of him was this eccentric '80s genre director, kind of. I mean, Solmi's Last Dance was kind of harder to categorize, but for the most part, I that's kind of what I identify with him was his '80s output. And I don't think, and I think the Devils I saw in like a very cut American version of it.
1: Oh uh, yeah, me too. I saw yeah. a VHS tape that a friend of a friend like happened to have they were borrowing the tape and I looked at the cover and the description on the back and was like someone made a movie for me and I've never seen it before. (laughs) Let me borrow this tape, please.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the devil's the devil's made a strong impact. I mean, I mean, I should say, like, every book on film I had growing up when I was starting to collect books about film and filmmakers trashed Ken Russell. Every every book I had from the Danny Perry books, the Roger Eber books, the Pauline Kael books, Director's Vision was a book I had on directors. And they all used similar language, which had to do with wretched excess, trashing the work for it being too over-the-top and hyperbolic. So I didn't actually see... Women in Love, or The Music Lovers, or Listomania, or even Tommy until um, much later. But I, you'd always read about these things only negatively. Like something like The Music Lovers, I never saw anything positive about it. So I was very slow to catch up with that stuff. And it wasn't easy to see it either.
1: Yeah, they can all go to hell, especially <laughs> Pauline kale, But I feel like this is true of a number of directors that I really love. Like hmm. you could... You could definitely read sim- similar things about Fassbender, like what is all this excessive melodrama. Yeah. And there, there are definitely a lot of overwrought feelings in Ken Russell movies. Zhuavsky, similar sure. thing. I just don't get this mentality that films need to be realist. Like it's so boring. Yeah, and it certainly it's great that you have people like you know the Italian neo realists change yeah. cinema. Yeah, amazing films, but I, I I don't understand why more mainstream critics can't seem to get their brain around the fact that. Someone would want to use cinema to the fullest extent of its artistic and imaginative capabilities. And I think that's really what he's going for. Mm-hmm. Is like, why would we want to capture realism on screen when we could turn it into a musical and a living painting and a living sculpture? So like, yeah, he's not for everyone and he is super over the top, but... But why is that bad?
0: Yeah, no, I think I think when I saw Mahler and the music lovers, it really kind of made me rethink the entire impression I had of him because I saw that these were great films and even better for my taste than I mean, I'm not saying that they're better than the devils. The devils is probably the best, best all around film. Like, but I, think, I, I think I might agree with you though. Like, I kind of prefer them to everything. Like, I think that when I saw those, and yeah, I can appreciate things like Savage Messiah and Listomania from that same period. But those, those composer biopics, uh, the theatrical ones, I thought were so moving and imaginative, and it just it made me like rethink the entire canon. Both the BBC things that were coming to DVD for the first time and also give a fresh look to things like Crimes of Passion and Gothic and Lair of the White Worm that I grew up with that I think I just thought of them as part of that like extreme comedic horror of the 80s. I mean, when I saw things like Lair of the White Worm, they made sense alongside things like Evil Dead 2 and Reanimator to me. They didn't seem like this is a guy that made art films.
1: No. And I do think you can, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but I do think you can draw a pretty clear line from what he's doing in the sixties with those BBC artist and composer biographies to the films of the eighties. But I do think in a way he is making his best films in the seventies and while I will always love the devils, I think Mahler might be his best film. It's, yeah. it's sort of like when he's able to make a film about a character or a figure who's this eccentric outsider, but show you the person's sort of tormented romantic relationships and their imaginative longings, like when he's able to really bring someone's fully rounded emotional inner world to life. That's when I think he's at his best. And that's not something that happens in the devils, but it happens in the music lovers and Mahler and even the Debussy film.
0: Yeah. The thing I grew to appreciate about Ken Russell, just kind of looking at his whole body of work, I mean, he reminds me of two other directors I've talked about on this show at length. And they're directors, I don't know that you'd logically compare to Ken Russell because stylistically they're very different. But I think of Robert Altman and I think of Sam Peckinpah. Whoa. Because... Ken Russell was born two years after them, but they're all children of the 20s that had military service. They all went into different branches of military. Yeah. They all went into television and really honed their craft technically doing things that were not rocking the boat with the establishment. You had Sam Peckinpah doing The Westerner. You had Robert Altman doing things like combat. And you had Ken Russell doing the things on monitor. And you had... uh, you had guys that were not of that counterculture generation, but when they got into movies at the end of the sixties and freedoms were opening up, they took those freedoms a lot more seriously than their contemporaries and took it much further and were much more iconoclastic than the baby boomers that were their peers in the business. And I think that they they were all like uh into different forms of excessive living. I think I think Peck and Pod and Russell were drinkers. I think Altman may have been as well. They were all willing to burn bridges f- oh, for their yeah. visions. They all had their periods in the wilderness professionally. The paths kind of diverge there, and obviously they make much different kinds of cinema. Also, they were all radically fucked with in the video cassette era because all of their widescreen masterpieces were panned and scanned into these cropped,
1: which is censored, just a crime against humanity. So that
0: people of my generation would not see. Nashville or the wild bunch or the devils in the versions that the audiences would have seen them in the seventies. So that's where my, my drawing those parallels comes from. But I,
1: I definitely see the Altman parallel in terms of the way that Altman, he, I think he's maybe stylistically more conventional than Russell, but like probably everyone is. Yeah. Um. But he does something similar with, the prominence of female characters mm-hmm. and taking them seriously in the way a lot of other male directors don't. Yeah. And also, just thinking about things like three women and images, the way that he's able to show these sort of rich, imaginative, and often tormented inner lives of characters, mm-hmm. it's its pretty
0: similar to Russell. I never would have made that connection on my own. but yeah. They also don't feel like... I mean, it's funny. Even with someone that makes a film like Tommy, they don't feel like rock and roll people. They feel like they 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 would be more comfortable listening to ragtime or classical or jazz. Like they don't feel like they're part of that Woodstock generation. But they they they'll throw on some love beads and run with it if that'll give give them the freedom to make their personal cinema. Which they you know, I think that they all were very canny in different ways in in having a hit that kind of bankrolled riskier projects. Altman had Mash. Women in Love for for, um, for Ken Russell. Which are both super iconoclastic. Yeah, but they were so successful that this gave them the freedom to go f- into weirder, more daring kind of projects.
1: Yeah, I think I can also see the relationship between Altman and Russell in the sense that, as you're pointing out, they make these films about pop culture and sometimes counterculture. Mm-hmm while in often kind of a subtle way pointing out that the thing that they're focusing on is still for profit in some way. Mm-hmm. Like the way, what he does with things like Listomania and Tommy, it's it feels very different than something like Phantom of the Paradise in the sense that it sort of looks at this pop culture phenomena with a certain degree of cynicism. So yeah. it's like they... Neither Altman nor Russell have have drank the Kool-Aid as it were. Like hmm. they're as you said they're not hippies, they're of an older generation. Yeah. But it's like they can really get into the the sort of roots of some of these themes while also looking at fundamentally how kind of cynical they are, which I think is something you see in films of the later 70s that explore this, like, dark
0: side of the summer of love. It's like they're doing it in the beginning of the 70s. Yeah. They also... They also don't feel like... Like, they both, especially Altman and Russell, are both influenced by people like Fellini. But... Uh, totally that that was going to be my comparison for russell's fellini but they also don't feel like people that would have been watching any other films that were being made at the time like they they don't feel like they were cinephiles like they, they might have been influenced by films growing up a little bit but they they were kind of into their own their own rhythm and their own world i could imagine them watching their own stuff pleasurably, more than I can imagine them watching their contemporaries and appreciating it. They seem like more prone to talk shit on their peers.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when you think about other directors with stylistic excess, like Fassbender and even Jodorowsky, Mm. like these are people who clearly are avid cinema goers. And with Zhuavsky, I think it's a little bit different because like Russell, he was very influenced by art. And literature, and opera, and ballet, and classical music. Yeah. Whereas somebody like Fassbender, it's he just like has lived the first twenty five years of his life in a movie theater. But I do think that that's part of what makes Russell's films so interesting to me. Is it feels like they're directed by someone who wants to be making works for the ballet or the theater rather than this. Like, he doesn't care about the cinematic audience. Mm. These are theatrical productions.
0: Yeah. Well, you're also much more of an expert in someone like Fritz Lang or Michael Powell than I am. And do you see... Because I, I know that when he talks about cinematic influences, I mean, he will always bring up things like Metropolis and... Um...
1: Powell is definitely, I think, an obvious... Yeah, and the red Another shoes. Another connection in my head, but even just Herzog, Blaubartsberg, and the oh, the yeah. sort of opera musical adaptations that Pal and Pressburger were doing for a while, they they feel like a the most direct influence yeah. on Russell.
0: Yeah, because when I think about, so I mean, as just a way that his work, his works kick off, like we mentioned Mahler, and Mahler's streaming on the criterion channel right now it's not really had a um a release in a while on home video but it has a Janus logo so it will probably enter the criterion collection one day on home disc but, i hope so but that's a film that <laughs> opens with a shot of a building just bursting into flame and then the music kicks in and it's like you're off to the races right off that like they throw you right into it like there's no there's no atmospheric kind of slow build up with his movies like they you just charge right in and that's You think about things like Gothic, like any of his films from the very early ones uh, up through the things he was shooting on video with his friends and family. They all have that same kind of energy to them. And the ones that feel kind of relaxed and static feel the ones that are the most unlike, like things he shot for cable just to survive, feel the most unrecognizable. But anything that seems like Ken Russell's this or that, the music is very ostentatious. There tends to be fire. There tends to be sex. Um, Lots of phallic imagery. Yeah. But a Catholic's idea of phallic imagery too because oh, yes. they are, they are definitely like conflicted films when it comes to the sexual themes.
1: Yeah, and in a way he reminds me a little bit of someone like William Peter Blatty who, you know, both of them are practicing Catholics who are making these films that, like, not that their films are really similar, but definitely you could talk about something like Legion, Exorcist 3, as being stylistically very excessive and over the top with these, like, dream and imaginative sequences that Ken Russell also does, but it's weird to talk about a director who is... A religious person and part of this very stylized, ritualistic, theatrical religion, which yeah. as someone who's raised Catholic, you know, Same. it just stamps in your brain. But for him to remain a practicing Catholic with those sorts of beliefs and to make these kind of hypersexual films, it it's like... I think on the surface, they seem to be made by someone who hates the church. But if you look at his films compared to Pasolini's, who Pasolini, I think someone raised with Roman Catholicism, was a lifelong atheist. But often talks about this like nostalgia for belief or like wishing that he he had faith but because of the state of the world and his life experiences he does not his films feel very much like coming out of this religious tradition but violently reacting against it whereas russell's films just feel like he wishes he was part of another time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, without even just jumping right into Elgar, I could just say that the line about mourning the passing of an age, it says so much about why that film connected with audiences, but also says so much about Russell himself, even if he he would always seem to want to distance himself from the things that had the greatest popular resonance, whether it be Elgar or w- Women in Love also. Um, he Which seemed, is strange. It just seems like the... The contrarian, I I want to shock and outrage people. And it's like if too many people like it, it It must be bad. I must have not done something right. I I need to really push buttons. Maybe it's something as simple as that. I don't know. But
1: I think you might be right. He definitely, and this comes across in interviews and some of the commentaries he did, Mm -hmm. just. A delightfully mischievous, cantankerous person who never wanted to fit into the status quo. And even his earliest shorts and the Monitor series that he did for the BBC, he focuses on all of these outsiders. And even if they're people like Elgar, who are not actually outsiders, he finds a way to show this other side of them. Like, here's a time when this established... Sort of wealthy bourgeois artist was, you know, living in a shack in England and struggling. There's always that side of it.
0: Yeah. So I guess where I could start is just to say that, I mean, he was born in 1927 and he's somebody that would show silent movies on his own little projector in his home and play records alongside. So he had an interest in silent cinema as a child. And I think you can sort of see the influence of silent cinema more than maybe even talkies on, on his on his work. I mean, he's somebody that always complains about having to have a lot of dialogue in his movies. I think he would be happy to tell it all in pictures if he was permitted to. And music, to. yeah. And music. A lot
1: of his later films, especially the 70s ones. Well, I think even from the, the early 60s Monitor series, so much of it feels like a musical or a music video where yeah. it's just like such rich visual imagery that tells a
0: clear story with as little dialogue as possible. Well, the one thing that seems to connect the monitor films and a lot of the, um, the seventies, uh, theatrical equivalents, as far as the composer, uh, biopics is they feel like he has fevered images in his head when he listens to their music. And he's trying to get that on screen and he'll fill in biographical details as best he can, and he'll get more creative with it as he goes. But, it's it's just trying to get the images that appear in his head, even something like Elgar, uh, which was I mean that's not his first film for monitor. I mean he's somebody that just just to fill in the blanks real quick. I mean he's somebody that price sensitive child uh, drawn to going to the pictures with his mother, uh, somebody that had a fondness for ballet. yeah, wanted to be a ballet dancer before he was in the war and even like conducted little musical productions while in the service that had soldiers getting into drag that got him into some kind of hot water with the brass I mean he's somebody that you know he he had that let's put on a show kind of spirit from a young age and went into ballet went into theater didn't really find success in it went into photography and, and made a name for himself doing commercial photography and at the same time uh, he's also doing short films trying to crack into the professional uh, movie making system in England, not having any success, uh, but his short films get him in the door at the BBC. He comes into a partnership with Hugh Weldon, who is really, I mean, this is something I also was thinking about is like, there's plenty of benefit to perceiving Ken Russell as an auteur. I mean, he's the connective tissue that brings you from Elgar up through Lair of the White Worm and so on. But he has like key collaborators that are essential to, to, to oh, the vision. And Hugh's he the will, first. Yeah, he was the sure. first one.
1: And I think. Hugh was so much more established and had this respected career and his work with Russell, where he did everything from narrating the episodes to acting as a producer. I think he co-wrote some of them. He sort of did all these behind the scenes things. And I think he really allowed Russell the freedom to experiment. Like, they did things on some of those monitor episodes that hadn't been done on television before like I want to say Elgar is the first to show creative reenactments.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, he was somebody that, they, yeah, they, they had strict rules about actors portraying real composers, real real subjects for them. So he would try to get around with, with like showing just some disembodied hands at a piano. But then they're like, "Well, oh, what if we just showed them in a long shot? What if we, like, he was always pushing it further and further into actually having Actors deliver dialogue as these people, but I mean, it was weirdly baby steps to get from something like Elgar to, to the Debussy film, Debussy film, which is a different thing entirely. But even with Debussy film, it's like almost like a film about making it. It's almost like a film, so a film about making a show. Layers, yeah. yes,
1: it's it's fascinating the way that that shows up throughout his work. This idea of okay, so we're doing we're telling a story about a person, often about. A, a real artist or composer, but we're also going to tell a story about telling the story. And I feel like that's how you get even something like The Boyfriend, where yeah. it, it just shows all of these different, it almost reminds me of something like Rashomon, where instead of just saying, how can we tell a story from different perspectives? It's like, how can we tell a story from different levels of imagination? Yeah. If, if that makes sense?
0: Let's set the stage for what Monitor was. If, if someone doesn't know what that show is, what was Ken Russell uh, getting hired into when he joined up in 59? So
1: Monitor is something that I feel like we don't necessarily have a great U.S. equivalent of. It's on one hand, a lot of it is cultural biography and what you could think of as cultural snapshots mm-hmm. so biographies of artists and musicians and composers but then he has these segments things like uh preservation man and cranko at work and he he's like looking at Artisans and workers. And so it's these various snippets of life in England, and they're all sort of different running times, which is something that I think is sometimes hard for Americans to understand about British TV even now, is like something like the Sherlock Holmes series. Mm-hmm. One episode isn't always forty-five minutes. It's like sometimes they're two hours, sometimes it's
0: thirty minutes. Yeah. Well, were they part of like were there, were there multiple segments within an episode? Yeah. 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 And and so because Ken Russell is coming from photojournalism at that point, I think I mean he had like a, a photo spread on Teddy Girls in the fifties mm-hmm. that was I guess that a quite was popular. the really popular one. Yeah. So he's initially coming in to monitor. To get slice of life material, essentially like documenting England. And so I always thought that was so interesting because you think of him as one of the great, uh, maybe fantasists is the wrong word, but like somebody that is not concerned with like documenting the day to day reality of the times. And so. And yet that's how he starts. And that's how he starts.
1: But I feel like he does it in a very, I mean, You could think about an American show like 60 Minutes Mm -hmm. where, like, yes, it's a news show, but it's sort of documenting, like, what's going on in world history right now. What are the events you should care about? Mm -hmm. And so much of what he does for Monitor, it's stuff that you would maybe never think to care about unless you were an art critic or a music critic. The one episode that he does on... In the 50s, before rock music really took off, he does this episode about guitar players. Yeah, guitar craze. Yeah. And so it's just clear that, like, he's able to find this really fascinating, imaginative, even fantastical aspect of mundane life. Mm -hmm. And that's what comes up. It's almost like... so. The parallel that's popping to mind is the French director, Jean Rollin, would always talk about how he had all these limitations when he was making films, like Mm. not a lot of budget, not a lot of just materials to work with. And sometimes he would talk about how that was a good problem to have. Mm. And having these limitations can make you more creative. And that's sort of how I feel about Russell's early work. It's like he had such strict guidelines from the BBC mm-hmm. and just sort of went buck wild, finding loopholes and finding ways to creatively reinterpret their strict rules.
0: Yeah. Watching some of these again, I was also just thinking, I mean, it comes much later, but I was thinking about how David Lynch worked on television with Twin Peaks and like how with a mass audience still trying to shoehorn in surrealism that connects it to Eraserhead and connects it to these things that are not commercial. That's definitely a great parallel. It, you look at something like Bella Bartok, and it's, it's, it's quite radical.
1: Oh, and I mean... It's definitely one of my favorites. Like, I don't think he had clear leftist political leanings, but...
0: Yeah, I don't think so.
1: I think he thought of himself as pretty apolitical, which is something that you see in the composer films of the 70s, for sure. It comes up. Mm. But in these composer biographies he's doing for Monitor, and and even just the sort of early artist snapshots in general... He always finds a way to connect people to sort of to connect these seemingly important isolated artistic figures to like the common man in England and to the landscape, which is just such a fascinating angle for someone who's not
0: political. Well, two things. One, I would say that we established that he's got this Catholic uh, background Um, or not even background. he, He converted to Catholicism yeah which is even crazier but but i think he also had a strain of paganism or earth worship uh oh, yeah. that uh you can feel it in the films and so often he returns i can't remember the specific area is it like lake district like yeah, do you, do you know what I'm talking about. But he like the way that like Roland had a beach that he liked. I was just gonna, say. <laughs> or, or John Ford had Monument Valley. Russell had this one, this one area with like lakes and mountains that he would return to as a location throughout his career. Um, I always want to call it Skidoo, like the Preminger film, but I think it's Skidaw. I can't remember, but it's it's Lake District.
1: Yes, and it shows up so heavily in these early monitor films. Like the way, whether this is historically accurate or not, he finds a way to connect people like Elgar and Debussy, especially, and Bartok back to the land as a source of inspiration, but also. Especially in the Debussy film, he shows the earth as being kind of fundamentally erotic, if if that makes sense. Like the landscape and nature have these sort of generative
0: powers which feels super pagan. I mean, that's how Tommy opens. I mean, it's got yes. like a, essentially like an like an orgasming waterfall. Oh, <laughs> you know. Yes. I mean, and this is a PG movie. <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and, and Tommy and the boyfriend would probably be two more widely seen examples that also use that location for nature settings before moving into cities. Well, I was going to say also is that when it comes to the composer films uh, that are like what most people would associate with his Monitor and Omnibus era, um, he goes from uh, portraits of creative people that are willing uh, interview subjects, and then he he kind of expands to talking about people that are no longer uh, with us, but he's a fan of. And he's somebody that comes with this wealth of passion for classical music and for Uh, painters and for sculptors especially 18th and 19th century and he's given the go-ahead to start pushing this and with each film he's getting progressively more daring pushing just a little bit further against whatever the rules are of the day and getting away with some pretty strong stuff even now i think as far as like some of his most radical films now you wrote at length about this series of films i mean what do you can you talk to me a little about the trajectory? Like Elgar is the breakthrough in 62.
1: So Elgar really is the first breakthrough moment of his career as a director where things start to change. And it's not just snapshots of life and cultural life in England, but it's looking at this historical figure who is somebody who... So at the time... Elgar was not a composer who was in fashion. He was seen as sort of outdated and stuffy Mm -hmm. and basically this like bourgeois figure who makes boring music for the state. And Russell really found a way to turn him into this kind of misunderstood poetic figure who was somebody who grew up in poverty and was like making the music of the people, which is how he attracted state sponsorship. Or, you know, crown sponsorship. And it is a deeply poetic film that I think incorporates a lot of the themes that would recur throughout his career that we've been talking about, like this use of montage sequences and these really stylized poetic visual moments that will replace dialogue to tell part of the story. Yeah. And they almost and and this is more true of the Debussy film than it is of Elgar, but they almost have sort of a and definitely the Bartok film as well. They have almost kind of like a gothic feel to them.
0: Yeah. Well, I was thinking just, I mean, the thing with Elgar is Elgar has these moments that feel like a slightly more impressionistic John Ford. Very impressionistic. But it's something that I think he gets uneasy with to the point where by the time you get to the features like Women in Love and The Music Lovers, he has these moments of beauty that feel like parody. Early on, it felt sincere, uh, like those moments of beauty. But it's it's almost like something in him would grow to not trust that. Like it's yeah. too easy for him to just be moving. He has to be ironic. But Elgar is a good place to begin if you just want to understand like that period of his career. Um, uh, it's on. It's on Blu Ray through the BBC.
1: Yeah, there's that little box set collection. Yeah, which is so important. I'm very glad that that got released because I feel like the Debussy film, the Bartok film, and what's the other one? No, with the Bartok all film the is re- not included.
0: It, it's oh, uh, that's right. It's later. Yeah. It, no, yeah. Well, no, but it, it's not on any sets. Bartok is the best one that is not included on it's, those. It's
1: so good. Yeah. It's, he really dives into. It almost feels like a horror film. It's, it's just like a ruffian in place. <laughs> it does. Well, he, he does this thing a little bit with the Debussy film, but definitely with the Bartok film where, and this begins in the Elgar film where he includes, and I think this is because he was expected to by the BBC, but he includes historical footage and things like still photographs. But by the time you get to the Bartok film, He almost seems to be suggesting that, like, here is a composer who's making this really moving, kind of tragic, sometimes frightening music as a response to the horrors of modern day life. And it's it's something that I think shows up in his later films, but... It's really, a, I think, a bridge too far for the BBC.
0: Well, you mentioned Jouaski earlier. Oh, and yes. One thing I, because I talked about Jouaski on this podcast also, and the thing I talked about on that was um, this marriage of high and low art. And the thing with Jouaski is that a lot of times he had literary influences or sources for the material. You would get more out of them if you did the heavy lifting intellectually like and did the extra reading but if you just come into it for sex and violence he will give you sex and violence but it's you'll you'll get more out of it if you've done the same oh uh, sure And I think Ken Russell is not dissimilar in that I think Ken Russell's aim is partly educational in the Monitor films as far as teaching a 1960s audience about these classical music figures, which gives him... And and painters, too. And painters, and and sculptors, I think. Yeah. But he's, he's somebody that has some protection because these are highbrow subjects, but he's also competing for the eyeballs of... Beatlemania generation that is not necessarily that curious about oh they're making something about Elgar let's check it out like he's, oh great he, this he's, is old people fuddy duddy music he's 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 using horror he's using sexuality he's using experimental techniques he's he's trying to he's trying to shake up the audience however he can to keep them invested in it like he's somebody that is consciously an entertainer and and willing to use um, aggressive techniques that carry over into the theatrical films.
1: Yes, I think that's very true, and I think also something that he does with a lot of those artist biographies, which I think comes across in the most obvious way in Listomania, is he's kind of suggesting that, okay, there's this modern culture, this modern music that you're all obsessed with, but here's where it came from, and here's where these earlier artists had similar moments where they went against the status quo and they had these breakout sort of revolutionary moments where they changed art or they changed
0: music. Yeah. Well, we'll get to listomania. I've got questions about that. (laughs) I have questions too. (laughs) (laughs) So he's established as this kind of renegade talent on the BBC. And you mentioned the Debussy film. And the thing I found so interesting about that one is that I think that follows um, French dressing because French dressing was the break into theatrical films but it it was a a comedy um commercial comedy commercial comedy i mean we don't have to go in depth on it but it's kind of it's 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 like this guy that's trying to uh energize the economy of his sleepy seaside town so he has the idea of bringing in this french new wave style sex pot actress to tend to have a film festival in their town it basically it's a it's a sex farce it's It's very much a product of its time. And I think what I would say about it just is that it's rare that Ken Russell made contemporary stories set in the present day. And so that was a rare instance where he's he's just breaking into the theatrical world and he's just trying to make a comedy that it doesn't feel like part of his own personal concerns in any way. It feels like
1: a work for hire project. And I'm pretty sure it bombed. And so he went back
0: to the BBC. Yeah, because I think that he had intentions to get the whole eccentric composer biopic theatrical film project off earlier and because French dressing uh, flopped he had to take this idea back to the BBC where he had some power but the thing with the Debussy film is that it's it's almost kind of like he had made the music lovers and he's making a self-reflexive thing about like This is what it's like to make a crazy biopic about a composer because it's already opening with the uh, Sebastiani uh, thing with like a like a woman on a cross being shot Shot with arrows arrows. like it's. I mean, both the Bartok
1: film, the Debussy film have this imagery that you could never have imagined being in something like Elgar where it's you know Elgar is beautiful and definitely has some stylized moments very poetical but he's just firing on a different level by the time you get past by the time you get to 65 which is the Debussy film and has this imagery that it's like how did the BB- how did he push the bbc this far to accept this kind yeah. of
0: sadomasochistic insanity well I just thought it was so funny because it's like if we're not allowed to actually have Oliver Reed play Debussy and have him do dialogue as a real person, let's make a film about making a film about Debussy and have Oliver Reed play an actor who is gonna play this character. It's meta when that's really no one was no doing one was doing that. anything like that, but it's like it's like about the tribulations of making a film of like the kind he would make like ten years later
1: <laughs> it's it's wildly sort of looks ahead to his career but i think also he was doing this interesting thing at the time that reminds me a little bit of italian neorealism where so they they very often a lot of the neorealist directors worked with regular people who were not professional actors but who had the right look or the right attitude that fit in the film yeah And it's not that Ken Russell really worked with non-professional performers, but I think he was more concerned with someone's appearance and attitude as being right for a part than their particular talent, which is how he wound up with Oliver Reed in the Debussy film, because Debussy and Reed have, you know, physical similarities And lifestyle similarities, like Debussy was, I mean, if you listen to his music now, it might seem kind of like calm and sedate, but he was having... Wild affairs, all these crazy romantic relationships, lots of drama, similar thing for Oliver Reed. So it's like he was the perfect person to play him. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine the sort of mental gymnastics he did to make that super meta film. It's like, well, if we can't literally show him as Debussy, then we will show a making of a film where he gets to play Debussy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like they're showing the making of a film that he would have made had, had he been allowed, had been allowed. Um, yeah, and, and you talk about the casting. I mean, it's something like always on Sunday, he cast a real-life painter to play a painter. And and yes. later on, Savage Messiah, he casts a real-life sculptor to play the lead. Uh, Which is, he makes some brilliant casting choices. Yeah. Now, I know that you are more of an espionage film buff than I am. What do you, what do you make a billion-dollar brain?
1: Honestly, it's something I haven't seen in a long time, but it reminds me of French dressing in the way that it feels like a work for hire project Mm. that I remember feeling like, yes, I like spy comedies and weird Euro spy films and, Mm. you know, who can argue with Michael Caine. Yeah. But it just like doesn't feel like it belongs in his career. Yeah. It almost doesn't make sense for us to really talk about it. Well,
0: I'll just say that yeah, I I went into it just in the spirit of being a completist. I had I don't think I've ever really even given Ick Press file uh, a proper watch, but the, I haven't. But the um, the cinematographer Billy Williams on um, that, who also shot Women in Love, is I think the the important piece. Yeah, uh, and and you can already see that when Ken Russell is not super invested in like spycraft dialogue, he's having fun showing the locations and creating a world, creating atmosphere having fun with telling a story on a big canvas. Uh, yes, I think
1: that it's more compelling than French dressing mm-hmm. because he has this bigger budget that he can play with. And I think he shows that he's immediately figuring out ways to be creative with the budget and like how far can he stretch it?
0: Yeah. And at one point someone is playing Tchaikovsky on a cello because God damn it, he's going to get that film made of one course. day. Of <laughs> course.
1: <laughs> One Day Soon after Billion Dollar Brain. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I forgot. I think in my head I I keep sort of melding together the Monitor series which he made from 59 to 65 with the Omnibus series mm-hmm. which is from 67 to 70. Yeah. And so some of that like, much wilder, more visually gothic stuff happens in the Omnibus series. That's where Bartok is from, right? I thought Bartok was earlier,
0: but I know that... um... It
1: just, it looks so much edgier than something like Elgar that I think I always assume maybe it's a little bit later. I thought
0: it was early, but I could be wrong. I know that when you get to things like Dante's Inferno. Oh yeah. That's speaking of Gothic. I mean, yes. <laughs> it opens with like a grave robbing scene, like straight out of hammer.
1: Oh yeah. There's, there's definitely some hammer like visuals happening in those omnibus yeah. series films. Like he, he clearly has not that the films are bad. I, I like them, mm-hmm but it's like he's his talent has reached a point and his confidence as a director he's moved beyond it and it's time for him to be making feature films he just isn't there yet in what he's allowed to do and what he's being given funding for
0: yeah so let's let's talk about women in love this was the film that kind of set him up as a major internationally acclaimed film director and again it's not like a work for hire but it's definitely like Is it Larry Kramer? Like, that's, it's really like his project. I mean, it's like something, he bought that source material. He wrote a draft of the screenplay. He produced it. And that was his baby. And he brings Ken Russell in because Ken Russell's the more experienced director. But I think it also, because of D.H. Lawrence, it feels
1: to me like a more authentically Russell thing because... I think there are a lot of similarities between Lawrence and Russell in terms of content, like Hmm. the way they think about psychological interiority and sexuality and tormented relationships.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I guess we sh- should probably fill in some of these what these plots are and it's yeah I mean the Women in Love it's the, it's based on the D.H. Lawrence novel and it's dealing with two sisters that get romantically involved with uh two men who are close friends uh Oliver Reed plays uh is it Gerald is his name the, but he he he's a guy that uh he's running his father's mine he has some money and privilege and then Alan Bates uh plays a uh like a school inspector and uh these two sisters Glenda Jackson. And And wow, she's incredible. Glenda Jackson is so, I, to, to, to me, like the major, even more than I'll read, like the major,
1: Oh, the cr- major, the major actor talent of his but, early years, but even also her character. So something that recurs throughout Russell's films, especially the ones to come after women. So women in love is 1969. Yeah. And, Part of the drama in the story comes from the fact that you have this sexually liberated, very opinionated, very headstrong woman who wants to be in this relationship, but not more than she wants her freedom. And she, she and the film and the novel are realistic about women's role in society. It's sort of like, yes, you can have this passionate sexual romantic relationship, even though that's, you know, shocking for the time. Mm. But once you agree to be someone's wife and you sign this contract, everything changes. Yeah. And so her refusal to kind of submit to Oliver Reed's character and to go with social convention It just, like, makes everyone crazy.
0: Yeah. And before I forget, Jenny Linden is the other actress who's who's the one that didn't have the same big movie career as the other three.
1: But it's still great in this. They're all great in this film, and they're dynamic together. It feels like, I think to me, part of it feels like such a typically Russell film because it has those sort of pagan elements we've been talking about, lots of focus on the landscape and how that... Is reflective of people's state of mind, which reminds me of
0: Paul and Pressburger. Oh yeah, yeah. More in this film than anything before it. I think when I came to Women in Love, I thought I was going to get something closer to Merchant Ivory or something. Oh when yeah. I, when I when I got to it, because it was up for Oscars in the '60s. You know, it was. I I just didn't expect that the Ken Russell I grew up with. I just could, be, could, could, be, could yeah. be doing something like that. But it's it's it is a film that is talky, that has a lot of dialogue about big ideas. I mean, he's, he's trying to do justice to, to Lawrence, but he's also uh, scenes of dance, whether like the Russian influence dance or oh, the yeah. dancing among the cattle. And that scene is the most pagan.
1: Yeah. In the film. And it's something that gets repeated later on in different ways in like The Boyfriend and Listomania where you have very similar like pastoral theatrical moments with a woman and nature. Yeah. But it also, I think, accomplished what he set out to do with what we've been talking about so far, just about how he always wanted to shock people. The scene that I think Is what put him on the map Is showing male nudity On screen and having this Like homoerotic Fireside on the bear Rug naked man Wrestling match between Oliver Reed And Alan Bates
0: Yeah (laughs) Yeah By a real roaring fire. No fake fire for that scene no either. No CGI fire. <laughs> and no no stuntmen. I mean, they're really getting thrown around. I mean, they they're getting really hurt. really it's, <laughs> it's a wild sequence. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, because I, I think about, like, why, why was this the hit? I always think about, I think of the same thing when I think about M.A.S.H. And, like, why was M.A.S.H. the hit that Altman's other classics were not? And I, what do you, I mean, we're talking about 69. We're talking about, like, the production code. We're talking about a, a real see change happening right at that time and i think about like art films sold on sexuality english language art film no less oh yeah um
1: but also i think something that you said really gets at why it was successful and i think this also applies to mash so with both women in love and mash they're tapping into this subject matter that was already popular, Mm -hmm. like the Merchant Ivory films, everybody was going to see them. I mean, they're super mainstream, but they're amazing. I mean, even I like the Merchant Ivory movies. And so it's like on the surface, you think you're getting this Merchant Ivory movie, you think you're getting this, well, you are getting a literary adaptation, but... So it's like he's giving you something that seems to be conventional while pushing all these boundaries at the same time. So it's like you're
0: getting people in the door with something that seems familiar and then it's not. He has this feverish imagination and whenever he can throw in things that kind of express it, he'll just find a way to incorporate it even with well while, while still telling a story in a, in, a, in a way that's easy to follow like he's somebody that never really for all of his experimentation they are narratively always very easy to follow all of his films like oh, he's not yeah. somebody that's playing experimental games like to trick anybody like i think a teenager or even a small child could probably follow them even if they're dealing with adult themes they're they're meant to be accessible films i think
1: A point that you brought up about how Women in Love does have a lot more dialogue than some of his other films, and the dialogue is concerned with these bigger philosophical kind of existential issues, in a way, it almost reminds me of what some of the French New Wave films are trying to do, which is like, how can we reimagine cinema and how can we talk about... These problems of living in a conservative world, but the way that they do it, the way, not all of them, but the way that certainly many of the French new wave directors, especially Godard do it is by making it inaccessible. It's like you have to do a lot of mental work and a lot of sometimes literal reading and homework Mm -hmm. to get everything that's going on. And Russell is much more direct and also says, I'm not making political films. I don't care about politics, but almost all of his films in the seventies, starting with women in love Mm -hmm. have these bigger picture issues of men and women arguing about The roles of these, like, really conservative gender roles and how they're making people miserable and how these individual characters are trying to change society or go against society. So they do feel political.
0: Yeah. Now, this is something I was thinking about watching, especially the 70s films, because I was thinking about, like, okay, Catholic guy guy that loves to shock and dealing with gender dealing with queer themes lots of queer themes lots of queer themes especially when but and women love i mean it's larry kramer also and larry kramer went on to be like a gay activist and wrote yeah. like provocative novels and stage shows so he's that makes sense coming from him but this is something that carries over into the music lovers carries over into into even listomania in yeah. a way yeah and
1: is he Gothic? Yep. Lots of parallels. Salome's Last Dance. Lots of weird parallels between women in love and gothic, even just like unintentional ones. Like the way that these... That's interesting. Yeah. These like big male egos are so attractive, but are so destructive. Mm, And how when they come up against these strong female personalities, there's almost this like alchemical process that happens where it just, like, it makes everyone
0: fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sick, because I was thinking about, like, does does he fall into that trap of portraying gay people as neurotic or othered? But, I mean, all the straight relationships in his films are also equally <laughs> complicated. Yeah, I...
1: No, I think he does an interesting thing where he shows how sex can be complicated and he doesn't necessarily seem to make it about gender or orientation it's a lot of his characters are eccentrics and outsiders and are often butting up against these people who are either socially conservative and or only concerned with profit.
0: Yes. Yeah, he's talking I mean he's dealing with like themes of repression in a lot of them too. Oh, yeah. And I mean as an English director, I mean he's, you know, it's How can you not? How can you not? Yeah. Well, I think about how he really had his moment in the sun around this time in England, but he I mean, he, he was kind of like a man without a country professionally for a lot of years after the, his initial heyday. I mean, they they did not want to know about him in England. I mean, they were not proud of their international boy genius or not even boy genius. I mean, he's a, he's a man, but, the, he, but he he embraced that enfant Terry Blake kind of, kind of thing. Much like Fassbender. But, but so he's big in Italy. He's got a cult following the US. He's got like reach, but, and, and, and you know, his films are reaching an audience in his home country because that's the other thing I was thinking about with, with Ken Russell if you could put him alongside uh Lindsay Anderson or Ken Loach or Mike Lee, he's not a leftist social critic. Like he's patriotic. And I think that he always kind of resented the anti-England things he picked up in those filmmakers' work. He would talk about that all the time. And I can't tell if he was just being bitchy about his you know he contemporaries. Loved being bitchy. He did love being <laughs> bitchy. But I also do think that like there's something kind of traditional underneath all of the bluster that I think You know, there was something I think that always kind of like he wanted to be embraced in England, but on his own terms, he would not make a film... I mean, by the time he goes back to Lawrence in the '90s with the Rainbow and Lady Chatterley's Lover, it's like it's a totally different, more mainstream, conservative thing. Yeah, it's almost or like a cons-
1: retreat. Maybe conservative is the wrong word. Predictable, maybe, or convention- conventional. Conventional is, the word is word probably for. the right
0: word. I mean, it's definitely like a, a retreat from like I'm not just the guy that's making horror films in America. I'm still your Ken. But I think I'm still your Ken. Yes, <laughs> but I think that you know, Women in Love is just so interesting because it's still. I mean, it's still like intense filmmaking. I mean, all, all the horror elements too, like the the way like people die in nature in it, like, yes. whether it be from, from, from drowning or from cold. I mean, it's very like visceral kind of uh, sex and death kind of film.
1: Well, it's also interesting because even though he's making all of these films in the 70s, starting with Women in Love, about... These more transgressive relationships and people who are eccentric and unconventional, they never have happy endings. Yeah. The people who are trying to live on their own terms and have their own version of sexuality almost always die.
0: Yeah. Often horribly. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to watch Women in Love and then just see where he takes it throughout that decade. I like when things kind of fit neatly within decades and like how Women in Love kicks off the 70s period and Alternate States kicks off the 80s period and in its own way, horror kicks off the 90s period yeah but before going on to another theatrical film we should just at least touch on dance of the seven veils because one thing that's kind of a miracle about women in love is that he got through the censors with with like a very bold i'm thinking it's because the the literary origins of the story and dh lawrence and this is art i think that's kind of how he got through it because this is representing something that comes from literature it's got some higher value than if it than if like doris wishman had tried to get that through you know something like he had like some protection but the first real serious battle with a kind of censorship uh comes with the dance of the seven veils Um, which he does get through, but it's, it's hilarious because it's like, it's him returning to the BBC, having made this, this, this big theatrical movie. That's like a real artistic achievement. And so he's got all this piss and vinegar in him. So he's like, I'm going to make one more of these BBC composer films, but let me show you what I've learned (laughs) about what I can do.
1: And they're like, hang on.
0: (laughs) Do you want to talk about this one at all?
1: So this one I haven't seen in forever. Okay. What I remember about it, this is the one, the the Strauss.
0: Yes, the Strauss one. That, but basically, it's... which
1: which sort of leads directly to List of Mania in a lot of ways with Wagner.
0: Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, and
1: and the way that he's concerned with these composers of a particular generation who were all very competitive with each other and were all dealing with different types of like public personas and popularity and political issues and finding funding for their work. And Strauss is also such a weird case because from what I remember, his estate was sort of maniacal about how he was portrayed in film and biographies.
0: I think most people would be concerned if they have any sense of public relations with how Strauss comes off in Dance of the Seven
1: Veils. Or Wagner and Listomania. Yes. And I think because he sort of gets away with it in Dance of the Seven Veils, that's how we get to the sheer fantastical insanity of Wagner as a vampire.
0: Nazi vampire. A yes. Nazi
1: Frankenstein vampire <laughs> in Listomania. Yeah, which is also very unfair. But we will talk about
0: that. Yeah, when we get to. Well, it. I mean, Dance of the Seven Veils. Just to, to comment on, and I, it comes and goes from places like YouTube. And I think it's. Yeah, th- it's
1: been hard to see.
0: It's been hard to see, but I think it's legally they can show it now. I think I think the the embargo that the Strauss estate put on it. Uh, past.
1: Yes. I want to say it was his daughter who put the embargo on it. If I'm remembering this correctly and because she died, it lifted. Yeah. But it just seems like such a crazy, I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a film that I mean really kind of links him to some unsavory things, and World War II in general is something that hangs over a lot of these films. That's something we didn't really talk about. I know that there's something you've written about at length. I mean, yeah. can you talk about World War II in relation to Ken Russell? I mean, obviously we have lots of Nazi imagery in uh, *Listomania* and um, *Tommy*. I think there's a World War II thing. I mean, uh, so. This is something that I
1: really struggle to understand in the context of his career, and something that one is maybe one of my few criticisms of Russell. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of directors, I would say almost all directors who were old enough to grow up in the 40s, particularly people who actually served in the war, mm-hmm. they inevitably reference it or even directly make films about it, like, you know, Pasolini, certainly the same case. Even mm-hmm. much younger directors like Fassbender and Zhivovsky. And Verhoven. And Verhoeven, who were children during the war mm-hmm. or were very young during the war, have a lot to say about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But Russell does this thing that... Okay, follow me on this flight of fancy here. Okay. So if you're not super familiar with cult music subgenres there's this musical genre called neo folk and mm. bands like Coil and Death in June
0: Current 93 Current
1: 93 these are all men for the most part who were often younger than Russell but kind of grew up in this generation where the war and the RAF were these sacred topics and something that happens in most of the countries of Europe and certainly in England is there's this mythologizing of the war where everybody who's not a Nazi is painted as some sort of heroic fighter, Mm. which of course is not historical reality at all. Lots of people just tried to ignore things and have business go on as usual but so a lot of the directors like Verhoeven and Zhuavsky go on to show, and definitely Fastbender, go on to show that the reality of the war is much more complicated. Than this kind of historical propagandistic mythologizing, except for Russell. Yeah. Russell does this very weird reductive thing where it's sort of like he does what some of the neo folk artists do and uses these Nazi symbols to show, like, this is bad, this is evil, this is totalitarian, there's nothing complicated about it. It's just evil, evil, evil. Yeah. And it's so reductive that. Not not that Nazis aren't evil. I, I don't, <laughs> don't want to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want there to be any confusion about that, but... Just like the way that he uses these symbols to be shocking mm-hmm. feels juvenile to me, especially for a director of his age.
0: It anticipates punk's use of swastika imagery, too. Yes, yeah,
1: totally. And that's what it reminds me of, is this kind of like later pop culture use of these symbols by kids who are too young to understand... Like, this is kind of stupid and juvenile. Yeah. And it's like he's doing it as an adult director who usually deals with a lot more complex themes. So I find it very frustrating.
0: Yeah. If you ever see... Dance of the Seven Veils. Um, I mean, parts of it almost feel like exploitation film to me. And this and Listomania, to me, they're like a companion piece in some ways. Well, it's also like the way that the Strauss recordings are on the soundtrack, they sound like records to me. And so it f- reminds me of the way library music appears in like 60s exploitation film. Yeah. Also, the prints that circulate are like bootleg prints, so they, they probably look rougher than what maybe showed on television at the time. But even the, um, the violence... Of it and the sexuality of it feels like it's I mean, like an exploitation movie. I mean, there's a scene that anticipates The Last House on the Left, where a Jewish concert goer has a uh, star of David carved into his chest by a Nazi. That is like straight up like West Craven territory. While while you know the show must go on, like turning a blind eye to Nazi atrocity. So even though the film. It shows Strauss not necessarily going along with the villainy to the degree that Wagner does in Listomania, but it shows him to be fatally complicit in atrocities. He seems to hate Germans. Yes. Which, to a
1: degree, you're in the war. It was horrible. I get it. Yeah. But it almost seems like he's like working out a personal vendetta using these two. Massively important and influential composers. Like yeah. Strauss and Wagner are two of the greatest composers.
0: Yeah, well, I know that he didn't... S- I, I don't think he saw action the way no. Peckinpah and Altman did no, with the I war. No, I don't but, think but, so. But... Um, he had, like, a beloved cousin that died from a landmine. I would assume that that might... I don't, I don't know if I want to, like, overstate, like, some what what the traumatic event... I don't know how often he talks about it, but I don't know if that kind of feeds, like like, the personal impact of world war two on on him to the point where he he's not going to be reasonable about things
1: yeah and it's like i get it but i think because i much prefer this sort of discourse around the war from directors like pasolini and fassbender and like Pasolini was in sort of a similar boat where he's just like wandering the countryside trying not to get murdered yeah. and yeah. and he still has this really complex view of fascism and the ways in which capitalism and consumerism f- serve a similar function
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so it i don't know i just find it really frustrating and I think it's why I've only seen Dance of the Seven Veils once in crappy bootleg form. It's how
0: anyone sees it. But
1: yeah. it's like, it's not like his films, a lot of his films have a real... Rewatchability joy for me. Like I've seen The Devils probably like 40 times by now, but those two in particular, and, and we'll talk more about Listomania in a little bit, but yeah. I just, I just like can't enjoy them.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, well, we'll get to The Devils also when it comes to enjoyment, um, because that I mean, that's one that I think is a masterpiece and maybe in a lot of ways his best film, but one that I don't always rewatch for fun because the scenes that linger in my memory are some of the most painful things he's ever shot. Oh yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. It's a full-on exploitation movie. Yeah. But between Dance of Seven Veils and The the Devils, uh, we have maybe my favorite uh, Ken Russell movie. it's (laughs) so good, but it also is just agonizing to watch. Yeah. There's The Music Lovers, which is Ken Russell's very controversial... Uh, biopic about Tchaikovsky and uh, queer Tchaikovsky, yes. But Richard Chamberlain plays Tchaikovsky and Glenda Jackson,
1: and they're both incredible. And it yeah. it goes back to I think some of those women
0: in love themes. I mean, they reenact a scene, yes. Like, <laughs> again, like where where Glenda Jackson plays Tchaikovsky's uh, a very wife. yeah, she
1: plays a very similar character who's really headstrong and. In, in a way, so this idea of him being kind of a secret conservative mm-hmm. is maybe not a secret conservative, but...
0: Who, Ken Russell? Ken Russell. Mm-hmm. Of,
1: of him being a little bit more conservative around sexuality, it's like even though he's showing these scenes of explicit sexuality in his films, mm-hmm. I think maybe now that I'm older... And have thought them through more. It does seem like some of his female characters who are really headstrong, on one hand, he shows them as just being in this difficult situation where they're living in this time that's just not for them. Like there's no place for them to exist unless, like in Listomania, they're really wealthy. But at the same time, he often paints them as villains, which is certainly the case. In the music
0: lovers, yeah. Well, I mean, all of his lovers are, are slightly villainous because Christopher Gable plays his yeah. uh, his 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 real love, the Count, the male lover, yes, um, who is playing up like certain kind of bitchy, treacherous gay stereotypes, but is also clearly the, the they're 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 the ones that are really in love. Um, it's funny rewatching it again I was reminded of the conformist of all things because it's another story about a neurotic man that's in a marriage of convenience because they, they can't live in a world where they're, uh, they're, they're they can be free they can be free to be gay and um,
1: and also I think to his credit that's how a lot of these women are shown is like they live in a world where they can't just be single and live their lives and have their own careers like yeah. they have to be married on some level
0: yeah and 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 the reductive uh, pitch that you hear about this, that comes from Russell himself, but I mean, it's often repeated, is it's a story of a homosexual who marries a nymphomaniac.
1: Which <laughs> I think is one of those great taglines that he used just to get a rise out of people. Yes. But on some level, that is what this movie is about. Yes but it's also about again one of the great composers. Yes.
0: I know that your your favorite critic Pauline Kale uh, when when attacking this which Good riddance she, Pauline attacking every Russell film. But attacking this one um she she said that like it's it's a homophobic film. And I was trying to think about like how one would read it that way even though it's clearly sympathetic to a queer protagonist.
1: A queer protagonist who I think something that a lot of his artist biographies really nail is this idea that in order to be a true artist, you have to find a way to make a living. Yeah. Like you have to find some sort of commercial venture to keep yourself fed and alive. And it's increasingly challenging when you don't conform to the status quo. And to me, that's what The Music Lovers is all about. I don't think it's homophobic at all.
0: No, I don't either. I mean, the only way I could see that reading is if you look at it the way some people look at something like... I don't know if this is an outlandish comparison or not, but if you look at Bohemian Rhapsody from a few years ago, and the way that you have the queer hero who is being kind of corrupted by this male lover on the side and someone with a homophobic attitude could say well see that's what they do they try to get this this popular music guy off track i'm reaching but that's the only thing i could think of as far as like reading as homophobic when it clearly so on the side of his pain and if anything it, it it's, oh, it's it's tougher so... on it's tougher on Glenna jackson's character i think
1: oh oh yeah it it really kind of does her dirty and she winds up i don't want to spoil the end of the film yeah. but like no one's in a good place at the end of this film. (laughs) And and it really in a way, is maybe the single one of his films that reminds me the most of Fassbender because there's so much emotional turmoil and melodrama and people who are just suffering.
0: That might be why it's my favorite because it is the one that feels the most uh, melodramatic and, and, and so much suffering. But in the best way. Yeah, but it's also so exuberantly told. I mean, the way it even just opens with wintertime frolicking it's the kind of film that's made by someone that's like, I've had some success now, and I can do what I want, and this is what I'm doing. Like, I love films that go off the deep end when a director has had their their big success, and they're like, we're not going to tell you what to do now. And Ken Russell just had decades of that. <laughs> because yeah. it's like, once he had went in love, it's like, he took every film with that same spirit that, like, directors, like... Um, like when I mean, I don't know if you don't like sh- shriek at this comparison, but like the way Sofia Coppola took on Marie Antoinette, which gets compared to Ken Russell, but it's the same thing where it's like he, she's had some Oscar success. So I'm just gonna make, I'm just gonna make my uh, crazy period costume drama, and you can't stop me. And, and Ken Russell feels like that same kind of spirit. It's like, all right, you're gonna let me do what I want now. I've been wanting to make the Tchaikovsky film for years. I'm just gonna go for it. And it's gonna be, it's gonna make people uncomfortable.
1: You know, I don't. Love her as a director, but I can kind of see the comparison, especially because I think her two best films, they're both costume drama period pieces Mm. all about this complex interiority of female characters who are trapped in these social situations where they are very bored yeah and are trying to escape the boredom yeah and i think to a degree that is also what happens with a lot of russell's female characters is they're just like confined by these social roles and will break out oh yeah much more exuberantly than like in the (laughs) Sofia Coppola films. I feel like they are maybe a little bit more realistic because the female characters can only break out by suicide or execution in the two films that I'm thinking (laughs) of. Yes. (laughs) But here it's like, They're much more fantastical, and Glenda Jackson is so well suited to just going off the
0: rails. Oh my god, she's so good in those films. She's so good. Yeah, no, and and, yeah, you're right. Because when I think about her characters in those films, I do think, yeah, someone that is like driven mad by boredom and will just try anything to break the monotony. Um, And and so, just one lesson about Sophia Coppola: she did marry the guy from *Phoenix* who had a hit single called *Listomania*. So maybe they they watch the films at home. (laughs) I don't know. The circle is complete. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, I think what's so crazy about some of these 70s Russell films is that they still feel very controversial and very like, whoa.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think The Devils, which we can get to because, I mean, you know, I promised you we wouldn't go for six hours. But, uh, I mean, I think if The Devils came out now, it would be controversial for different reasons.
1: Why do you think it would
0: be controversial now? Because it's about a uh, an innocent guy that's, you know, maybe a bit of a fuckboy, but it's being canceled for no reason by a crazy woman. Fair. <laughs> that's fair. She is villainized. Yeah. But he's, he's being killed because he, of a false accusation. So I think that if you if you wanted to politicize it as like a men's rights kind of screed, you could have that reading. I'm not saying I've ever thought of it that way. but Yeah,
1: I definitely haven't, but I can (laughs) see your point now. But also, I guess, like, while you could have that reading of it, Mm -hmm. it's another one that I think goes back to my point about how women are put in these impossibly restrictive conservative social situations. Mm. In this case the most restrictive yes they are literally in a convent and one of the i think really important things about this film is unlike a lot of other more mainstream movies about nuns it shows the historical truth Hmm. that most of these women didn't want to be there they were basically sold to the church by their families who couldn't afford dowries for weddings. Yeah. So it's like you're being sold somewhere, whether it's to a husband or to Jesus as your husband.
0: Yeah. Can you give me just for the listeners that might not have seen the devil's like a synopsis? I mean, this is, this is coming from is Aldous Huxley's.
1: Aldous Huxley's book, the devils of Ludun, which highly recommended incredible book about this real historical event in, I want to say 15th century France, where there was this town. So the thing that you have to understand for the whole plot to make sense is something that Russell reflects in a really great way in the film is this issue that at the time, a lot of what we think of as modern day states and nations were not like that in the 1500s and 1600s. And so people were basically, even in the 17 and 1800s, in the case of some countries like Italy. Mm-hmm. And so you have people in positions of power working to consolidate their power. Yeah. And in France at this time, you have these certain cities who were autonomous They were sort of separate from the king and a little bit separate from the church and were pretty much self-governing. And that's something that you saw a lot more in the earlier medieval ages, but this town of Loudun, which is where the book is set and the film, they were one of the last strongholds in like late medieval France. And the king, Louis XIV, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: part of why he's so famous is because he was incredible at consolidating power and at making aristocrats and the church just sort of buckle underneath him mm-hmm. and he basically created the conditions in France that led to the revolution because they w- they were so extreme and so you have this priest father grandier played mm-hmm. by Oliver Reed perfectly cast who as as you said is a fuck boy. He's yeah. using his incredible charisma mm-hmm. and
0: privilege and, power position. And his
1: privilege yeah. in order to just kind of sleep with whoever he wants. And he sleeps with this nobleman's daughter mm. who wants more out of the relationship. Mm-hmm. She gets pregnant, mm-hmm. he tells her to fuck off, mm-hmm. and she helps set in motion his downfall, which is something that's greatly desired by Cardinal Richelieu, mm. again, a real figure who's head of the church in France, and by Louis the Fourteenth. And part of the way they accomplish this is because there's a... Convent run by this woman who is Sister Jean. Yes, yeah, Sister Jean, who played only by Vanessa Redgrave. Yes, played to the nines by <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave when she wasn't out, you know, being a leftist and protesting <laughs> all over Europe. Good mm-hmm. for her. Yeah, uh, but. She's obsessed with the idea of him. Mm -hmm. And because she's this intelligent, powerful, charismatic woman who Mm -hmm. is trapped in a convent and also trapped in her own body by this physical disability Mm -hmm. that that gives her a humpback. Yeah she just kind of goes nuts and yeah. i think the film does portray her as villainous but extremely sympathetic it's like here's this woman who's just made miserable by society yeah and so she accuses him of being this you know satanic force who possesses the convent and because all the other sisters are also young attractive Sexual women who are bored And have nothing that they can do with their lives They give in to the hysteria It's its almost like the medieval version of clickbait It's yeah. like they get they get a little bit of attention yeah. And they go insane And yeah. just like keep going bigger and bigger and bigger While meanwhile Grandier mm-hmm. has found true love And wants to renounce his fuckboy ways And even though he's a priest mm-hmm. Wants to use his degree of autism autonomy in Ludun to marry this woman. And and so all hell breaks loose when the Inquisition arrives.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about how this film was such an an outlier on his resume for years, and yeah, and and now I would say it, it. if it's not his most popular film, it's certainly in contention with Tommy and Women in Love. It might be his, his most, most popular. Notorious. F- yeah, I guess it is his most. I mean, it's definitely his most notorious because it's still censored for, from coming out on Blu-ray in this country, even in the version that came out on DVD in England, which I mean, is just a crime. Yeah, yeah, it's it's clearly something personal with that particular film at Warner Brothers. It's not.
1: They, they hate it.
0: Yeah, it's not a situation where they don't know the demand or the... It's not even about money. They could make a lot of money if they put it out on But blue. they don't they want don't, to. They, it's more than money. They just really hate it. The thought that a Catholic person...
1: And, like, so certainly it makes sense that Aldous Huxley would write this book in the 50s mm-hmm. under McCarthyism. Because the book is all about hysteria and false accusations and people being made to take the blame... For this situation where somebody just wants to accumulate political power, but is yeah. using sort of moral hysteria as this cloaking device. Mm-hmm. And it just is very strange that you would have this Catholic director. Making a movie that is so anti-church.
0: Yeah. Or anti-corruption within the church. Because it's not, it's the same thing, because I mean, the first controversial film I remember hearing about as a kid was The Last Temptation of Christ. Catholic director making it in what he thinks is good faith, but antagonizes a very powerful, organized group of people that want to destroy it and will use violence to destroy it if they have to in some cases any means necessary and i think with the devils you know i think that i mean i'm sure ken russell knew he was pushing buttons when he did sequences like the rape of christ sequence that are cut out of even the british release when it came out theatrically
1: well and there's just so much even beyond the rape of christ scene i mean you have naked nuns in varying states of sexual hysteria and the this like hot priest who Mm -hmm. is the main inquisitor who he just like looks like he could be a rolling stone (laughs) and is performing enemas in as a means of exorcism and it just like you have this suggestion that Sister Jeanne, at the end of the film, masturbates with a bone fragment. Like, yes. it's wild. It's, it's one of the most excessive films ever made.
0: Yeah. And one that I, I think even some of his detractors, like uh, Danny Perry, who wrote cult movies, acknowledge the devils, is a, is, a, is a story where his style absolutely works for the material oh, yeah i think that when i think about why is this film so well known in a way that nearly all of his other 70s output is not i think it's because it is it is a horror film and it's like a definitely it's a cousin to mark of the devil and witchfinder general it's a it's a uh is it the first i mean where does non start in relation to this does nunsploitation follow this?
1: That's a good question. I think nunsploitation breaks out right around the same time. Okay. Because that really takes off mostly in Italian cinema in the 70s. Yes. You have some Mexican films too, but again, they're usually made in very Catholic countries. Yes. Yeah. Which is why it's strange to see an English director. Making this in the
0: 70s. With American money.
1: With American money. And it, it also, it just, this film, I think, is so much more related to something like Witchfinder General, where mm-hmm. it's all about politics and corruption and
0: moral hysteria. And torture set pieces. Because when I think about really the devils... Really convincing
1: torture set pieces. When I think pieces. about the devils,
0: one of the reasons that I, every time I watch it, I think it's funny. I think it's beautiful looking.
1: It's so, I mean,
0: Derek Jarman, RIP. Derek, Derek Jarman, shout out to Derek Jarman, who like is the MVP as far as like creating a world that is so striking that it's one of his most beautiful looking films. You know, Ken also, Russell.
1: Also, one of my favorite lines out of Ken Russell's mouth on the commentary for The Devils, uh-huh. He he's talking about how he explained to a very, at the time, very young Derek Jarman, who was just getting started on his career about what he wanted, and how there's this great line in the book where Sister Jean talks about the chamber being like a public lavatory. Mm-hmm. And so you literally have all this white tiling, like it looks like a bathroom. Like Jarman took it super literally, but also made it beautiful and stylistic. And when Russell's talking about it, he's like, he says, you know, Derek Jarman, he's a perverse one
0: (laughs) (laughs) or something like that. It's so good. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first time I saw it, it opens with this Birth of Venus stage production playing with... The king in drag, and it's so—it's you, you, you're not given any information yet as to what is even happening, and it's very done, disorienting. Like, done in this like um, deliberately chintzy, but s- surreally chintzy kind of like little stage show, like. That Which
1: is historically accurate to a degree. And there are certain parts of the devils that I think benefit, sort of like we were talking about earlier, where you can know nothing about the history and watch it and just have your brain exploded. Yeah. But if you do know about the historical background, I think it makes it even richer because there's all this stuff going on with the way that sort of costume and theatrical language and performance are really important important to Louis the 14th and mm. how he manipulates them as tools of state propaganda and like forces his courtiers to wear different costumes based on rank and their allowed proximity to him mm-hmm. based on how important they are that week. Yeah. It's like he makes these people insane yeah. basically. And yeah. they, that I think comes across so well in that opening scene where it's like they're all forced to watch the performance and clap and like no aspect of life under Louis the 14th is authentic. It is all a performance.
0: I feel like the devils, even though the devils I mean, it was seen by people, it was successful, but it also anticipates Ken Russell, genre filmmaker of the eighties. And almost every film he makes in the eighties yeah. references the devils, whether the hallucinatory imagery of altered states or the the religious nun imagery and things in crimes of passion or the the uh, the crucifixion imagery in Lair of the White Worm.
1: That, and that's in Listomania, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, the crucifixion is in a lot of them. But I mean, yeah. like, I mean... But, but
1: I mean, the uh, sort of sexy nun oh, yeah, 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 stuff yeah. is in Listomania. It is in...
0: The, yeah. And, like, even just the uh, on the commentary he recorded for the Lair of the White Worm, there's, like, a fantasy where, like, nuns are being ravaged by soldiers. I mean, he's like, they it's- must have wandered in from one of my other films. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like a weird kind of reference to the devils. But. It's- it's nuts that yeah. those sequences, but we'll yeah, we'll yeah get there. Yeah, but it's I mean it's it's heartening to see it become like a a cause to champion for so many people, but it, it almost feels like in vain because it's clearly not about. I, I don't know how one ever really wrestles that out from the you know lock and key that it's under.
1: Well, whoever's there has to die. Maybe I don't know, but it's not even the same. Yeah, like I. That's what I. This is what is so hard for me to understand because like you said, it feels very personal. Oh their yeah. their sort of censorship of this film. Yeah. But in order for something to be personal, you would think that it would have to be attributed to a specific. Yeah. I don't think Ted person. Ashley
0: has still got any control. <laughs> yeah. So
1: it's like, what's the deal?
0: Yeah. No, it's it's really I mean, it's not a situation where there's a, a rights issue or a music clearance issue. Clearly there's a big audience for that film. And And nobody can get it out. I mean, it's the BFI put out a very nice DVD to the best of their ability. Even that, um, they had to edit Mark Kermode's documentary. You know, they had to edit the film. I mean, they could not put out the full strength cut that exists now. Which is psychotic. Yeah. And they weren't even allowed to put it on Blu-ray, even though Blu-ray existed at that time. Like, it was arbitrary almost. It makes
1: no sense and feels very arbitrary. Yes. Um, I... Spent a lot of money as like a Mm 20-year-old buying a bootleg at a horror convention. Mm -hmm. And it is one of my prized possessions. It has the full documentary on it as well. And, you know, if you can find that version, it looks crappier than the BFI disc. But you're seeing more of the authentic film. Yes. But also can I tell my favorite Oliver Reed, Ken Russell story? I think you know what I'm going to say about their acting. Yes, I do know. I do know. Yeah. The the sort of direction he would give (laughs) Oliver Reed as an actor. Mm -hmm. So like we mentioned, they started working together on the Debussy film and would continue this partnership that obviously was really important to both of their careers. And they worked so well together that Ken Russell apparently sort of honed it down to a science and would have three descriptions that he would use for Oliver Reed for a given scene, which is Moody (laughs) 1, Moody 2, and Moody 3. Yeah. Moody 1 is like, it's sort of like rated G. Mm -hmm. It's you're giving a sort of standard, more mainstream performance. Yeah. Moody two is it's a little bit scary, it's a little bit intense, yeah, Moody Three, which he called for several times on the devils, <laughs> is it's like women and children should leave the building
0: <laughs> so good, so good he,
1: but he really. I think Oliver Reed is an incredible force of nature, but I think there are times in his career where you see him sort of push to the limit of his talent yeah. and, or he's just like maybe slightly miscast in certain things, but anytime he's with Ken Russell, mm-hmm. I feel like they work so well together that Russell really brought out the best performances in Reed. Oh, sure. Sure.
0: I totally agree. Just
1: sort of wonderful, brave,
0: vulnerable. Yeah, well, when you look at the devils, and uh, you wonder why wasn't Oliver Reed like ruling the '70s? He's like so powerful in it. I uh, honestly be- think it's I think it's the of- drinking.
1: Well and I was behavior. gonna say
0: it's a Wings Hauser situation
1: yeah. where not that I think he's quite to the same tier as Oliver Reed, but I feel like with something like Vice Squad, you see this incredible performance yeah. that should have made him on the same tier as like Al Pacino with the right directors, but I think it's just the sort of excesses of the seventies and eighties of drinking and drug use and partying and and also being sorted hard- material
0: like being good in sorted material will not always open the doors for you. Like it'll get
1: you, sure you have to be a glad hander kissing yeah. people's asses and Oliver Reed definitely was hard to people talk about how he was incredible but was hard to deal with on sets yeah. sometimes. Yeah, he's
0: not kinsky, but he's not he's not an he's not No one is. Yeah, but he's not but <laughs> Thank he's God. not Yeah, but he's not yeah, he was yeah a moody actor. <laughs>
1: Movie three, Mody in, real three life. in real life. I mean, even if you watch some of the like 80s and 90s talk shows that oh he's god. on, it is wild yeah, when he talks no. about, there's this great one. And, you know, I say this as a person with curly hair. He talks about how people with curly hair are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, love him. You know, I think we spent a lot of time talking about how great Oliver Reed is, but the most interesting character in the film is Sister Jean, and mm-hmm. I, I think she's an important advancement of what Glenda Jackson brings to women in love and the music lovers. Is this woman who needs to break out of these bonds and is just made monstrous by this society that
0: she's in. Vanessa Redgrave is perfect in the film. And
1: just a powerhouse.
0: Yeah. I mean, she bites the hand. Oh my
1: God. It's, it's so feral. And the part where, so Oliver reads quote-unquote wife, Madeline, I think her name is, she goes to see Sister Jeanne because for a time she was considering joining the convent and becoming part of their order, yeah. but goes to rescind her application because she started this relationship with Grandier. Yeah. And she talks to Sister Jeanne through this grate. There are these bars. It's almost like she's on the street and Sister Jean is in the sewer. Yeah. And she she's contorted and pushes her face up to to the bars and grabs her and says, You know, fornicator, fornicator, yeah. sacrilegious bitch. And she's basically frothing at the mouth. I do think that he does some really interesting things that you also see show up in a similar way in some of Valerian bravchik's films that mm. show how sexuality is just this natural component of nature and humanity. And when we try to repress or control it, it makes people psychotic. Yeah.
0: Well, Or monstrous. Or monstrous. Well, before we started recording this, you had mentioned to me that you had caught up with the film that comes next, The Boyfriend, which I think Russell even intentionally chose a project to show that he wasn't crazy, that he liked innocence and goodness too, that he was The boyfriend is flat
1: out crazy.
0: But I, well, you know what I mean, though. Like I think,
1: I think, I think after... There's no hysterical excess. There's
0: just a lot of excess excess of a different type. Yes. Uh, And still running into cuts from the studio, but like... um, Why? Because it's four hours long? Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's it's definitely not as dainty as 42nd Street. It's like a behemoth of of, of of whimsy which i think is why i loved it so much i think about like ken russell's commercial peak in the early 70s and i, I know he had other big hits later like tommy but um just the way that like Music lovers, the devils and the boyfriend all come out in such quick succession that they were all still playing in London's West End, like at the same time. I mean, he, he really was like a one man, like return of like the English auteur. I mean, no one else in his peer group, Nick Rogue, any of the other people really had quite that one, two, three punch like that.
1: Well, and to have all three of those come out in 71, it's just like, what? Yeah. If, if. If it was fastbender, I would just assume that <laughs> cocaine and amphetamines were responsible, but yeah. like... Was he just high on Christ or something? Yeah, well, I
0: think I think The Music Lovers was, like, wrapping up throughout 70, so yeah. he went... But he went from re, that right into The Devils, like, within 10 days, I think, from the rap of uh Music Lovers. It, it, it was a fast turnaround.
1: Which, like, how? They're such stylistically enormous films. Yeah, like, they aren't
0: chamber dramas, like, with two no. people in a room. <laughs> I think the boyfriend has its own cult following, but it it, it because it is a a family friendly musical, it does kind of stand apart from things like the devils. Uh, but
1: it's not even that family friendly. Like there's this just like air of sauciness that goes throughout it. Because yeah, so it, the plot's really hard to describe. But I yeah, well, I mean,
0: it's it's. Was it? Th- it's two or three levels because it's on the one hand it's I like a backstage. Three. Well, it's a backstage stage musical where there's a uh, a production it's set in the twenties. Right, it's set in the twenties. They're putting on a show that's like a musical set in a was it like a like a French boarding school? Uh,
1: yes, it's it's one of those. French comedies of manners that is so popular in the 19th in the 18th and 19th centuries where it's like people are pretending and Shakespeare did this too where it's like you have these characters falling in love and because of social conventions people have to pretend to be someone other than they are yeah which of course is all revealed at the end yeah
0: in matters of class or you know yes
1: and it's one of the only ones with the happy ending
0: yes so so what's interesting about The Boyfriend it, in terms of where it falls as a musical because it's pre-cabaret and so like it's not the kind of musical it has scenes where people break into song but for the most part they're motivated by being performances within a stage show so it's kind of like it's closer to like those.
1: It's like all that jazz
0: yeah. a little
1: bit and I feel like Fosse must have seen this and thought like well what the hell
0: <laughs> yeah yeah. but if, if 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 you're somebody whose reaction to musical is, um, well, that I just can't go with it because people don't break into song in real life. Like this is like a, a a film where most of the musical numbers are things that are happening in a real space where people are watching them. Um, and what I was thinking, like re-watching it is how, at least initially, Russell... I mean, he breaks this over the course of the film, but he initially abstains from using any of the privileged positions that a camera can get into on stage. Like, you're instead given the best seat in the house with almost no break in the shot. Like, you're watching it either from the the, balcony balcony, or you're watching it from uh, the center uh but you're but you're you're seeing it like the way a really good audience see that's the perspective you're not initially getting shots where the camera is from the stage and the perspective of the Performers, at least initially. I mean, he breaks you gradually into uh, privileged kind of positions camera-wise.
1: But for a specific reason. So so it's like layer number one is they're putting on a production of this play that we mentioned, Mm -hmm. and the lead actress, played by Glenda Jackson, gets in a minor injury, but it prevents her from dancing and performing. So the assistant stage manager, played by Twiggy, is comedically forced to step in and is just terrible but like gets better as it goes along and it's important to them because there's this famous director who's watching from the balcony and everybody either wants him to notice them so he'll cast them in one of his films or maybe he'll turn their play into a film but then you have these demented and extremely excessive moments where Twiggy's character As she's in the role, starts to fantasize about the actor who plays the sort of leading love interest.
0: Christopher Gable from The Music Lovers. Yes, who
1: she's in love with, he has Mm -hmm. no idea, doesn't really pay any attention to her. And so it's like you go from this kind of low budget podunk 20s musical mm. into this like richly detailed, imaginative, fantastical sequence where she's imagining the scene of the play as if it was this thing in a fantasy.
0: The yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and and but you also even have the fantasies of that Hollywood type, which are Busby Berkeley tributes. I mean, and they're so gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a tribute to like an entertainment that was, I guess, what uh, Russell and his mother would have gone to see in the theater. I mean. There, there is some naughtiness to it, but for the most part, it's a quite innocent film. The naughtiness is funny, too. Yeah, it's a funny film. Um, it's based on a play, Sandy Wilson, 1954. So it's, it's already like, it's 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 a nod to the 20s but it was a nod to the 20s even when it was made 20 years prior to the film.
1: Yeah, but it does it feels like a love letter to his childhood and to his desire to become a
0: dancer and yeah, and it's um it's also coming a couple of years after Bonnie and Clyde reintroduces the 20s theme in pop culture and like music yeah, that's from that time 67 67 yes and it's right before is it right before the sting but it's like but like there's a, there's like these flirtations in films with 20s pop culture and there's also a nostalgia for old Hollywood that starts creeping into new Hollywood uh, the boyfriend is kind of touching on it. Bogdanovich's stuff starts happening around that time, like "What's Up, Doc," and but also like things like Valentino kind of anticipate this later. Yeah. But um, this is the era of things like Gable and Lombard, W.C. Fields and me, Day of the Locust, like all of these films.
1: Oh, and what's the my Night at Mitski's, or... Oh, the night they were that? at Miss, Mitski's, the yes. uh, Mitski's,
0: the, uh, the William Friedkin? Yes, yeah.
1: which is... When I first started watching The Boyfriend, that's what it most brought to mind oh, for me. yeah,
0: yeah. No, I can see that. I think, I think that it's... I think it did make money, but I think that through no help from the studio who cut it down, um, like, they lost whole sequences. I mean, right now, you can only get it in its original cut, but it, it was a film that... I think the initial critical reaction was reacting to like a severely truncated version of it. It's not like the critics that found the music lovers and the devils too excessive and extreme forgave him for this whimsical Busby Berkeley kind of thing. They were just still like, it's, it's, it's still too much. It's still too much somehow.
1: It's, I mean, it's a lot. It's like two and a half hours long and yeah. just, you can follow, like you were saying earlier, you can follow the plot, even though it's sort of hard to describe, but it's like you have to like really be there for the fantasy, yeah. which I was and absolutely loved it. But it does also kind of remind me of what's the Woody Allen film where she has the unhappy marriage. Purple Rose of Cairo. Yes. It reminded me of Purple Rose of Cairo in the way it follows this kind of lonely, introverted, awkward female character who has this really, really rich inner life. And I think a lot of times when you show characters who are trying to fit in with mainstream society, they're taught to repress that kind of imaginative streak. Mm -hmm. And the two leads are so similar where she just like is so caught up in this inner world that... It almost starts, there starts to be this dissolve between the real world and her fantasy life that I think he brings so incredibly to the screen and Boyfriend. Yeah, well, you're... you're, Like, there's nothing like it. So spot
0: on. Well, they're both, like, the audience surrogate, but not not just the audience for us, the audience for the entertainment that is being commented on.
1: Well, and this just sort of reminds me of what we've been talking about off and on, is this idea that he's an observer of art and culture and is showing how, how these sort of eccentric, imaginative dreamers wind up as artists and in the arts... And how they just kind of don't fit into society, but like find their own pockets. Mm. And I think this is the happiest, most whimsical and most optimistic take on that that he has in his whole career.
0: Yeah, it feels like one of the most personal films. And I think, I don't know how personally he takes the receptions of these things. I feel like no one must have had thicker skin than Ken Russell on some level. But everything I know about the making of The Boyfriend suggests a really tough shoot. Devils and the Music Lovers and Boyfriend are tough shoots. And maybe that accounts for how they came out so quickly.
1: Well, the productions are ridiculously elaborate. I yeah. mean, same thing with Listomania, but like compared to something like Savage Messiah, which is pretty straightforward, Yeah, even Mahler, it's like. How do you make them all so quickly when they are so elaborate?
0: But I get the impression even from... If you look at the whole trajectory from Peep Show and the short films down through the films he was making with his wife at the very end on video... You get a sense that he's a guy that would be just as happy making a film in the yard with friends and family and a very small production, and we can all drink during the shoot. We can and have just fun and have fun, jokes. make jokes, have a shorthand. This is why he hires the same people and over and over again. It's not just because he thinks they're talented. But I think he just wants to feel comfortable. And
1: well, and there's that level of trust. Like, yeah. Even You even hear people like Claude Chabral, who is the total opposite filmmaker of <laughs> Ken Russell, talk about how these people were his family. Like, he works with the same people mm. and made probably as many films as Ken Russell. Oh, yeah, if not more. But Yeah, probably more. But, like, tended to work with the same people over and over again and would always say, like, these aren't just my films. This is a whole group of collaborators. So even, even someone like Polanski, who is definitely a control freak in his films tended to work with the same people because it's like, people know what you want yeah. and you trust their skill set and so when you're trying to make these highly stylized productions i'm sure on some level trying to work with a new crew members every time
0: would be insane well ken russell has a reputation in a lot of stories about the makings of these films as being a shouter like somebody that's like a very controlling person a funny thing, I, I, I forget where I heard this, but the, he didn't really storyboard the films.
1: Which how? How do you make something like Mahler or The Devils or even especially The Boyfriend without yeah. a storyboard?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that always held true. I know that, um, I think, w- certainly talking about Women in Love, which is no small film, you know, I mean, that's a, that's that's got a lot of setups, a lot of locations. Um, Billy Williams said that Ken Russell was not someone that believed in storyboards. Um, Funny. so I don't know that maybe that changed something like the boyfriend, I don't know how else he would choreograph it. But then again, I mean, so often he's having things play out in like, master shots. And you know, he, he's somebody that gets the shots he needs, but he's not a director that believes in a lot of coverage is something he talks about on commentaries, like Lair of the White Worm is one where yeah. he talks about that. So uh, he must just have a lot of it in his head. But that also would explain why he would keep using certain DPs over and over again, where there's a shorthand, maybe not like a Moody 1, Moody 2 level of simplicity, but something hopefully comparable.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that really is elegant in its directness. Yeah. But yeah, I I mean, that is something that I think about a lot in terms of his films, because while things like The Boyfriend and Listomania are musicals, Mm -hmm. so many of his films, especially from this period, like you could make a case to discuss The Devils as if it's a musical because of just how choreographed certain scenes are, like, in a way. I think this is sometimes how he reminds me of Zhuavsky, where Zhivovsky, of course, made an opera adaptation, mm-hmm. never really a musical on the same level as The Boyfriend, right. although, could you imagine? But I can. But he has groups of people moving in and out of frames in a way that feels to me like a musical and Russell does often very similar things.
0: Well they well I mean I know that um, our friend Daniel Byrd even mentioned how Savage Messiah, the next film, has, uh, you know, a feeling that, you know, evokes maybe... Uh, well, I, I forget if he said that that kind of, like, echoes Jawsky a little bit, or if he was saying that the... I know he said that the blue note feels like Russell a little bit.
1: So I was definitely thinking that. So the blue note, which is pretty much an adaptation to a degree of Chopin's relationship with George Son mm-hmm. has these incredibly wonderful moments with puppets mm-hmm. that are meant to evoke the characters like they yeah. they're sort of miniature gorgeous miniature versions of the characters yeah the same thing happens in listomania yes and list of course was a close friend of chopin and mm-hmm. chopin and george Sand show up in listomania mm-hmm. and zhuwavsky must have been responding to it in some way because it's like if you're making a biopic about these musical and artistic contemporaries and of course the Blue Note's not a musical the way Listomania is, and there are no wild flights of fancy like Richard Wagner as a vampire. No, but there's still these elements of like, how do these central romantic relationships change the life of this composer?
0: Yeah, well, and they both just just more generally both really favor heightened performance styles that come oh, from yeah. different places because I feel like Juhaszky is coming more from maybe the theater tradition. And well, they're
1: both very theatrical directors. Like, yes. Savage Messiah looks like
0: a stage play half the time. Yeah. And let's... I mean, we can't go through every film at this length. No. But, like, but well, Savage Messiah, I, had you seen that one before we started prepping for this? No, this was another one that I watched for the first time. What'd you think of it?
1: I didn't love it, but I liked it a lot. And I think it's another really interesting example of him taking maybe a more realistic, narrow, close-up look at a relationship between artists. Mm-hmm. And it just, it really focuses this sort of parallel on how art, how someone's art develops and changes and how their commercial career develops and changes alongside the growth of a complicated, difficult romantic relationship, which is at the center of almost all of his major films.
0: Yeah. I mean, it reminds me so much of the music lovers in the, in the dynamic, but like a slightly healthier kind of dynamic. Less
1: miserable less melodramatic but more chaotic
0: but still like a love story that is not really sexual but that is a couple
1: but Wh- which is interesting because it's another one that he's drawing from real life so yeah. Gaudí breschka was an important sculptor who wound up serving in world war one dies when he's like 23 or 24 mm. and most, in my understanding, most of his major biographies just focus on his career and his friendships with other important modernist artists and writers in the teens. And what Russell does differently is, so in Gaudier Breszka's hyphenated name, mm. the hyphen is for Sophie Breska, who mm. was a Polish émigré, wanted to be a writer, Nothing of hers got published until decades after her death, mm. but she's like 20, 25 years older than Gaudi. and they had this super unconventional relationship that was really important to both their careers. I think the information about her life survives through their letters. Mm-hmm. And so it's just fascinating that that's the story he would want to tell, because There are almost no, like, there are some scenes she's not in, but Mm -hmm. 90% of the film is
0: their relationship dynamic. Yeah. And how they make each other crazy. Well, and I can't remember, I thought that his story was really important to Russell early on, as far as like feeling like I'm an artist and nobody gets me. And, you know, like, (laughs) on a very simple, like, you know, true genius is not heralded at his own time, and that's me. I'm just that. I'm just like, he saw himself in the tradition of the artist outsider, which is something that he comes to again and again in these stories all over these films and it's so funny that he's coming off of like these this wave of notoriety and success as he tackles this small-scale version of like but they don't get me
1: well it's also interesting because i think if you were a more mainstream commercial filmmaker who was working for a company like merchant ivory or something focused on big budget period pieces, you would focus on the other big personalities. Like, to go back to Chopin, there are a number of musical biopics about Chopin, and they almost always include the other sort of major artistic players as characters. Mm -hmm. But what he does in this is he shows these other historical characters in these little, like, Blips where they make fun of the person and we're not supposed to like them or get to know them. We are only supposed to care about the two main characters and naked Helen Mirren.
0: Yes, very key scene.
1: But the way the film depicts her character is she is certainly an antagonist. Yes. She's you know, upper middle class starts off bombing a town square to get people's attention to the suffragist movement. And so it seems like she's going to be this sort of political revolutionary. And then she's revealed to just be this sort of decadent, rich, doesn't actually care about working class people, just is attracted to this artist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I think the first time I saw Savage Messiah was after I'd already seen Mahler and Listomania and the Music Lovers. And so I was amazed that he could tell that same kind of story that he likes about the brilliant but troubled composers and bring it to sculpting and not skip a beat as far as like, if anything, it's it's got the same manic energy as the Daltrey films as far as like that character is just running around is constantly I mean but he's like a maniac he's so young it's like young boy energy which is so different from from Tchaikovsky's energy
1: or even from the energy of listomania where he's like I am in my late middle ages and I'm just trying to make it work and be true to my art and all these damn women are getting in the way yeah
0: but he also like we said earlier like he got an actual sculptor so when that guy is like chipping away to create those statues it feels like this feels what he probably does <laughs>
1: well it it yes it's very visceral in the way that i think a lot of Zhuavsky films are but it also again reminded me of the blue note where in that film, Zywowski cast one of the most celebrated Polish pianists oh, right, and, oh, yeah, yeah. and Chopin performers to play Chopin. So you don't have the fucking annoying thing that always happens in musical films where you have this actor playing an instrument, but then we have to cut away yeah, and look at someone of hands else's hands. Doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that about both of these films, but I do think this is one of the only Russell films I can think of other than The Boyfriend where there's this sort of youthful exuberance. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of his other characters are full of piss and vinegar, but they're kind of like beaten down. Whereas he never is. He just like goes
0: off to the war and that's all she wrote. Yeah. Speaking of characters that are a little bit more beaten down, so he follows this with Mahler. Which, uh, as we 've both established, we are hardcore fans of, and i I, I actually got to show this to you, you if did. I remember correctly and
1: I honestly i haven 't seen this in a while, and it's it 's one of those films that I really do need to revisit, but I think it might be his best
0: well i, I, I all i 'll just say about this because I, I feel like a lot of a lot of listeners might be less likely to have seen this one unless they 're already coming to it as Ken Russell fans, but it is. It is another composer uh biofilm um Robert Powell plays gustav Mahler Man, and it's he's incredible he's incredible in it. It's one of those films where it's like he's he's on a train ride reflecting back on his life, and so it's kind of episodes in the in the story of Gustav Mahler done in these increasingly like fantastic flights of fancy, but it feels like. To me, I don't know if you'd agree, like it feels like the closest marriage between the explosive freedom of the theatrical films with the, the more human kind of um, contemplative feel of like the BBC uh, composer films. I mean, not that those are all like restrained either, but I mean, it feels like the, the guy that would make something like the Debussy film or... Especially something like, uh, was it Song of Summer? Which yeah, we didn't Song talk about. of Summer, which is the Delius. The Delius film. Like, it feels like a little bit of that, not necessarily like Elgar, but it feels like, you know, you put it alongside, you know, Listomania or Music Lovers. Or, or, even, or even Bartok. Or even Bartok. This feels like... I mean, it has its moments of outrageous imagery. I mean, certainly the conversion fantasy scene where he's like, goes through the conversion from Judaism to Christianity. I don't know how well you remember this scene, but like, but like there, there there's outrageous set pieces in it. But the tone, the tone of it is, I wouldn't go as far to say like elegiac, but it's definitely like a, a more. Oh, no, contr- I
1: think, I think that's what it has in common with the Debussy film and Bartok is it is kind of elegiac and mournful and tormented in a way that the music lovers is. Yeah. But I totally agree about those set pieces. And I think this is what makes Mahler the best of his films is anytime they're excessive set pieces, they serve the story Mm -hmm. and they, they serve an emotional function other than just to shock you. Right unlike listomania or tommy where he just wants to be shocking and just wants to have these giant spectacles
0: yeah yeah well i if if um do you want to jump to the the adultery films
1: yeah i i I feel like to a certain extent we could probably wrap up in the next 30 yeah yeah let's because we've already talked about all the major themes and so it's like it with this second half of his career it's just like different ways that he's imagining the themes and sort of transforming into genre cinema.
0: Yeah, well, with with Tommy would be probably the most widely seen, I mean, it's probably the only one that probably still, I don't know if it still plays on television, but that's how I first came across that's it. That's
1: also how I saw it and yeah. I was like, what the sweet hell is this?
0: Yeah, I think I came to Tommy under the completely wrong assumption that it was going to be closer to like the Ziggy Stardust films. Or, like, or I, like,
1: like Hard Day's Night. Not even
0: Hard Day's Night, <laughs> but I think I thought it would be closer to uh, capturing the Tommy live show. Like, I think I thought it was going to be closer to a concert film. I knew Oliver Reed was in it. I thought maybe it would be like something closer to capturing what the Who were doing live in that period. Um, And Which Which would have
1: made sense. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) but it sure is not. No,
0: it's an opera. It's his only opera film. I mean, of like theatrical films, because there's no spoken dialogue. I mean, it's all sung.
1: Which is how it was introduced to me, because... I grew up listening to and watching taped performances of Met operas because before she got married, my grandmother was an opera singer and felt like I needed to have this sort of musical education and be exposed to things more than just pop culture. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I came to this in such a weird, specific way because it was sort of like my dad saying to me and my grandmother, hey the who made an opera film Mm. why don't we all watch it it's on tv Mm -hmm. and my grandmother thought that roger daltrey had a great voice and liked the who Mm -hmm. and but as a kid i was like all right i've seen some pretty wild met productions which we had on tape but like nothing comparing (laughs) to this
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's just crazy. I think I saw initially just like a segment of it and I thought it was so surreal, even in a way that Ken Russell's other 70s films are not quite as gung-ho surreal. I mean, it's it feels like he's using this opportunity to collaborate with pop stars, but to smuggle in every idea that he could. That he's ever had. That he's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's so relentless. that Actually, both of these films that he did with Roger Dalton, because mini is also relentless. That They're they, kind of exhausting. They are kind of exhausting. I would say that... Do you know much about The Angels? Mm-mm. So The Angels was a film that he was going to do after Savage Messiah. And I think it was MGM just didn't feel like it was commercial enough. It was... I forget the source that he was adapting, but it's like dealing with this director character whose name is Michael Mann, which is this is before Michael Mann from Chicago became a famous director. So I'm not sure if it's a coincidence because Michael Mann, the director of Thief and Heat and Manhunter, did work in like the british commercial industry yeah. like in the 70s or like early 70s like late 60s so it's possible that he could have crossed paths with Ken Russell in his commercial days and he heard the name and it sounded
1: like like a kind of whimsical everyman name I, yeah
0: or just or just could be a total coincidence but he so michael Mann, the director character of the of this story is infatuated with this much younger not like creepy younger but like a younger woman that he's pursuing but i think it's dealing with it's, it's got some subplot. With like Black Panther. So it's like atypically like engaging with like politics of the time, but it's also um, dealing with the threat of commercialism. And I think what Ken Russell says is that a lot of his imagery in Tommy comes from the Angels. He couldn't get that film made, but like he still had all these ideas. And so he took it and tried to shoehorn it into Pete Townsend's thing. Sure. Which. I think like the the soap suds and baked beans type stuff in Tommy, I think that might makes come from sense. That. But it's hard to know because he mentions the baked beans thing in that book the appalling talent which is before tommy is on his radar so i don't think because i know that like um projection booth mike white talks about tommy's like i don't know because he he thought that came from like who sell out and like the imagery associated with the the who but
1: i feel like it's plausible that it comes from both
0: yeah i think so
1: like there's always weird pop culture overlap in different periods and i think he's good at inadvertently picking up on it or just because like from the beginning of his career even when he's making like the monitor episodes for the BBC and some short films he's always focused on art and pop culture to a degree yeah and so it's like obviously something he cares about that he incorporates into all of his
0: scripts into the 80s at least yeah I watched Tommy again this morning and it was like it's 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 winning me over, but it was not a film that i I could ini- initially embrace because I think I responded to the melancholy of of his earlier composer films. and this is closer to comic book territory, but not in a not comic book like Marvel Comics, but like panels of a comic book.
1: so does Listomania. Yeah. I, I think Tommy and Listomania are a. Uh, Double feature that like you can't separate them from each other. No, but they came out
0: the same year too.
1: Yeah, and I totally agree with you. I think I find them both to have no or very little emotional resonance. And they take a lot of the themes of his earlier films, like almost all the themes of his earlier films, yeah. but it's just sort of like going through these themes at such a fast pace with s- all of these set pieces that to me feel like they're just spectacle. Yeah. And like I don't think they're bad films. I no. just think comparatively, they're just very
0: showy. They're extremely showy. And they're very body. And I think that when it comes to Tomics, I've met people that have an emotional relationship with that film. And I think it's because they saw it as children and the child abuse angle of it somehow. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty brutal. But it's it's brutal, but but it's so subtle that it can play on television uncut. Whereas like something like you know, ch- exhibit A, B, and C with Ken Russell runs into censorship problems. Oh yeah. Tommy Tommy gets at a child abuse story that shows in the middle of the day on TBS <laughs> because it's you know because it's not explicitly rendered. And because it's done with like Elton John and Tina Turner and all these music people. But I agree that it's like as a as a satire of commercialism, I've never quite understood it because I mean I just bought a ticket and you're gonna sell me the Tommy album and the Tommy poster after this is over, right? So like it's Robert Stigwood producing it. It's not it's not coming from the counterculture.
1: Whereas I think Listomania is a maybe more effective satire of commercialism because in a way it takes this you know it takes this super famous rock star, yeah, like the who basically second to the Beatles at the time, and it looks at the original pop star, yeah. Franz Liszt, who it might be hard to believe. And I feel like he does a similar thing with Lisztomania in a way that he did with Elgar, where it's like, here's this fuddy-duddy old people music, which like, if you like classical music at all, Liszt is not. He's His music is extremely exciting and energetic and imaginative and really important. But in real life, he was basically the first classical performer who had women literally screaming at at his performances and actually retired from performing relatively early so that he could kind of maintain that myth of him as being the perfect concert performer. Yeah. Unlike Chopin, who just is like crying at the keyboard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a good title.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what uh, the Blue Note
0: should have been called. Yeah. <laughs> it should have been but they do have those puppets in common they do have those puppets in common i mean listomania almost kind of defies like i think by the time that listomania comes along it's like the last word in a certain kind of cartoonish tendency that's growing in in ken russell's films that That tommy really takes over after listomania yeah in a way that i don't always love well i think listomania i mean it's It it feels like like porno boyfriend, the boyfriend's exuberance taken into like an X-rated territory with (laughs) 10 foot boner (laughs) at one point. He
1: does indeed have a 10 foot boner and he is he is in a palace full of boner sculptures. (laughs) And then later he's with the pope played by Ringo Starr. and Ringo comes in while he's while he's having sex with this woman who is naked and he's supposed to be on a monastic retreat. And he, and he, this might be my favorite scene of the film. He, he's like, you know, your grace, I'm so sorry. She, I thought she was a man and basically this was an accident and she took advantage of me and, and Ringo's like accident, you know, being accidentally raped happens to us all. I totally get it. And it just, (laughs) the way they play this ridiculous scene, it just, it's so straight faced.
0: Yeah. But... It's the kind of film where someone can die from a voodoo doll, meet all their exes in heaven, and come back in a spaceship to take on the Frankenstein monster Nazi. And, like, that's, that's the kind of film you're dealing with. It,
1: it is, and I want to like it, but I can't because how, of how dirty it does Richard Wagner. <laughs>
0: It's true Wagner comes off worse than Strauss somehow in terms of Oh my of- <laughs>
1: god, he comes across so bad. So in in the beginning and so getting into the politics of Wagner's music and the way that it was, you know, perverted by the Nazis mm. is something that we don't really have time for in yeah, this epic long episode. conversation. <laughs> But Wagner started off as a left wing revolutionary and was banned from Germ was kicked out of Germany for like 15 or 20 years because of his revolutionary politics yeah. and definitely was anti-Semitic, as were many people at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think you should be forgiven for that. But like to paint him as a literal Nazi is so anachronistic and enraging and it just like pretty much what he does in the film is he makes it seem like Wagner is this musical hack who wrote a couple of good like stanzas yeah and they're made better because of lists reinterpretation of them which is just not true yeah to have someone who made so many musical biographies say that about one of the most important influential musical artists of all time it's like why what is your deal with germans
0: it's it's the, the he
1: even talks shit on Beethoven in it.
0: Do you know do you, do you know what his Beethoven movie would have been? No. So after Valentino, he was gonna make Dracula, but Dracula bit <laughs> Beethoven. So Beethoven, but like they, he would only bite geniuses. So like. <laughs>
1: Okay, that film I wish we could have
0: seen. (laughs) Like, I'm still trying to process just what little information he's, like, shared about the Dracula film that he would have made. Um, Let's touch on Valentino real quick, because Valentino, I kind of like Valentino. It's, It's kind of always forgotten about and it's i I know that even russell himself said he walked out on a repertory screening of it saying he just was not great it's one that i haven't seen it feels like the closing of the door it's the last film he made with shirley russell his brilliant costume designer wife and their their marriage was a little bit i guess tempestuous in places and 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 it finally what a shock it it finally (laughs) uh came to an end after valentino unfortunately but i i mean well, I, hopefully they were both happy separately, but I mean, they, but they, cr- creatively they were like a, such a great partnership. I mean, you look at the costume design and all the things we just talked about; it's incredible. It's always incredible, flawless. And this was like a uh, a, a film that was like a, a a film about Rudolph Valentino in Hollywood, played by was it Nureyev? Nureyev, yes. yeah, the, the the dancer. It's. A little bit less crazy. It only has a couple of scenes where the vulgarity and outrage of Russell kind of bleed out, but for the most part, it's slightly more in not say boyfriend. It's not quite as light as that, but it, it's like it, savage messiah territory. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a film that's like playing in twenties Hollywood, and he's clearly having fun. He's working with real money behind it. It's um it's Winkler and Chardoff, the the, the producers who later did uh, Rocky and Raging Bull, and actually I think I'm trying to think where it falls in relation to Rocky. But it's like with the producers that did, you know, things with Scorsese and uh this was their their project with Ken Russell and I think it might have I I think it might have had some success initially in England but for the most part it was like a big flop and uh that on the heels of Listomania I think Put him in kind of director jail for a second, and he he goes back to england he I think he works in theater, I think he works in television again maybe yeah for just for a couple of years, but he comes back in the 80s so the 80s i mean it almost reminds
1: me of the monty python and now for something completely different well you
0: think about (laughs) you think about directors that have their big heyday in the 70s and how they how they survived the 80s i mean i mentioned altman and peckinpah and they both stumble
1: yeah i think the 80s were rough for a lot of people who are transitioning from the seventies,
0: yes, yeah, I think even yeah, but and and for the English filmmakers, I mean, this is this is when Nick Rogue starts running into distribution problems with that timing, and Eureka gets put on the shelf, and he he falls out of fashion quick.
1: Well, yeah. even some somebody like
0: Peter Greenaway, yeah, Well, Greenaway comes is almost like a new generation because that's yeah. where he really takes off with the Droughtman's contract. But like a, you get like Lindsay Anderson. Britannia Hospital, I think, is the only that thing he has a makes. really hard time. Yes. Yeah, has a really hard time, and it's also. I was thinking about this. Um, this is when a different breed of commercially trained directors come out of England, because I mean, we we didn't we only kind of touched on this briefly, but I mean, Russell had a background in advertising as well as everything else. Yeah, and so he will use his power to evoke advertising language mockingly. Which she does
1: pretty well in Listomania.
0: Yes. Despite my issues with it. But this is the heyday of Adrian Lyne, Alan Parker, uh, Ridley Scott... Uh, Tony Scott. And, the superior brother. Yeah, well, <laughs> actually, maybe, yeah. I, I, I would have I, that conversation. I stand by that. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I wouldn't protest it, although I will have a conversation. Yes. but um, and, and, and Alan Parker making a film out of the wall feels like a film that could, it did play on Double Bills with Tommy. So. Yeah, he had a crazy career. Weird career. Very weird. But so, Altered States, it's a case where he steps in to a Patty Chayefsky production that was originally set up to be directed by Arthur Penn, speaking of directors who had a rocky 80s after being like a big name in the 60s and 70s.
1: Um, Yeah, and I think has similar things where he he's kind of like edgy and transgressive for a while and then just sort of like has to catch
0: up. Yeah. So... So Ken Russell comes into this and at Warner Brothers, home of the devils. <laughs> so it's like home of the actual devil. Yes. But <laughs> also he's like in a situation where he can't change the words, so he just has everyone speak faster because, you know, he's got to follow the remit of Chayefsky's control as the writer. He's working with people like William Hurt that are hot rising stars and it and
1: very headstrong and apparently not fun to work with.
0: Yes. But it's also catching him right at the threshold of that bladder effects thing that john landis and joe dante bring to werewolf films the year after yeah it's it's weirdly catching ken russell making a cutting edge science fiction movie when nothing else on the resume prior to that would suggest that has anything to do with who ken russell is
1: even anything that would interest him but i feel like he like we were talking about earlier, I think this is really a continuation of some of his themes. It's like, this is a, in Altered States, this is not a character who's an artist, but he takes such an intense view of science and his scientific experiments that it's like you could sort of draw a parallel to those sort of outsider eccentric artists that Russell is interested in. Yeah. And it's yet another headstrong male character whose life is very much changed and whose work is changed by his relationship with a woman. Yeah. And that, I think, is what makes the film great, is their dynamic and yeah. the way that their relationship plays out. And it, if I'm remembering correctly, it does have a happy ending.
0: It does have a happy ending. In a sense. In a sense, yeah. No, it does. And again, it's not material that Russell had a whole lot of control in terms of that story. And sometimes it feels like his id is waiting to get to those hallucination sequences oh, yeah. which really explode in, in ways that are like the real Ken Russell was waiting this entire time I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you exposition I'll give you characters talking in the real world in the present day like just on a street corner in Boston Like, well, I'll, I'll play in your real world for a second but let me, let me, let me get to the ayahuasca scene let me, get to, let me bring let me out let me turn him into a worm Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, l- l- let me let me create a highbrow version of Werewolf London, you know, like or The Fly or whatever. Like it's yeah. a mad scientist horror movie, but it's also so high minded that it's like a weird battle of writer, actor, director, content. Because I don't think of Chayesky as a science fiction person either. He's the guy that made Marty and Hospital and like you yeah. know Network. He's not like it's not like he comes from that genre world either. And maybe this is. It's a, f- a weird fluke, I it's think. It's a weird fluke. That works. It, I, I not, think, not without its flaws. Not without its flaws. I was going to even say, as a, as a side note, one thing I thought about when watching Altered States is like, how much did Cronenberg study Ken Russell? Because they are like night and day as far as tone. But I think about... Similar use of
1: melodrama and tormented relationships and interiority. I, and...
0: Oliver Reed shows up in the brood but obviously he shows up in a lot of horror. Um Peter Schuizski who shot uh Listomania and um Valentino becomes Mark Irwin's replacement from Dead Ringers on as for the oh, DP. Yeah. But the whole beginning of Altered States sets in motion like at least 3 Cronenberg films I can think of as far as like the kind of neurotic offbeat scientist hero guy and the strong-willed woman that kind of romances him. And they have this courtship that is like, the courtship in Altered States is the courtship from The Fly, is the courtship from The Dead Zone, is the courtship from Videodrome. And it's like, they all come right after Altered States, that same body transformation, high-minded science fiction, elevated science fiction horror. And I just wonder, because I know Cronenberg, there's a clip of him greeting and embracing Ken Russell and says he's a big fan, but you think about the excesses of Cronenberg, at least in his body horror heyday, and it still feels, like, very cold and controlled. Like, he's not somebody that ever really... I mean, he cut loose in very, like, specific ways. But for the most part, he's, like... Even before you get to things like Crash, he was always, like, clinically controlled, whereas Russell was proudly exuberant and, like, out there. Out of control. (laughs) But I sometimes wonder if, when Cronenberg is thinking about how to tell these kinds of stories and bring in the appeal of romance. Just when watching, I'm thinking like, this feels like the first act of at least three Cronenberg films that right that immediately follow this. Do you, do, do you see what I'm talking about?
1: I honestly have never thought about this before, and I'm a huge Cronenberg fan, but that makes total sense. And I feel like that character type from Altered States you first see in The Devils, (laughs) where you have this really headstrong, self-assured guy who goes through, partly because of his love for a woman, goes through this process where he kind of questions his identity, whether, and, and you see this in Gothic a little bit as well, whether questioning his identity is Something that he does willingly, like Mm -hmm. in The Devils, he realizes, I want to live a different life. Yeah. Like, this has totally changed how I think about myself and my relationship to my faith and to my community. Mm -hmm. And he becomes a better person because of it. Yeah. And I feel like Altered States, a little bit of that happens as well. But you see it in some of those movies throughout the 70s and 80s where this headstrong, very macho guy is transformed. It's even... Oliver Reed sort of plays this character type in Women in Love, but doesn't want to go through those changes and comes up against all this friction. And so that makes perfect sense because I feel like the development of that character is so fundamental to cronenberg's
0: filmography yeah and i should just say now th- say it out loud that it's probably less apparent in videodrome because that's not really quite the same kind of tender romance that you see in dead zone in the fly but no. that same but that same kind of dance between kind of a a sharp smart lady and like the slightly odd cronenbergian hero altered states seems to like create that template.
1: Yeah, I definitely can't argue with that. And I I do think the fantastical elements of Ken Russell and whatever influence he may have had on Cronenberg come out in those genre film elements. Like, like while they do feel colder, I think the coldness is a mask. I think my favorite Cronenberg moments, they're basically Fassbender films. (laughs) There's tons of melodrama, tons of emotional turmoil. Yeah. Characters who don't understand their place in the world and want to change the world, but don't know how to do it in a way that isn't extremely destructive. Yeah.
0: But like um, altered states, the success. I think it was a talked about film more than it was a big money maker. I don't think the altered states was necessarily. It was, it was a fast cult movie. Yeah. But it was not like a, um, a huge hit. I mean, the way that like this is the Star Wars era. I mean, this is like not like a, sci- a sci-fi fantasy blockbuster in that in that period. But it it kind of opens the door for the eighties chapter. Of Ken Russell as a genre filmmaker with Crimes of Passion, Gothic, uh, and Salome's, Salome's Last, Last Dance, Dance and Laird the White Worm*, especially.
1: Yeah, and those are all, I think, their own distinctive body of films that feel very different from the '70s films, even if they have some themes in common. What would
0: you say about them in in a uh, in like a macro level? Like what what when you consider that group of films? What do you, what's your takeaway after the initial decades with the BBC films and then the seventies films? Like, what do you see happening with those films?
1: Well, I think they take on a different stylistic quality. Like they definitely look much more eighties. And I think in a weird way, they're all still kind of concerned with the way that a character's interior fantasy life impacts the outside world. Like, you know, in, in crimes of passion, Anthony Perkins, who is incredible in the film, if you watch crimes of passion and edge of sanity back to back, Mm. you're like, I need to lay down for the rest of my life. Yeah. (laughs) But I think they start to become darker and more cynical Mm -hmm. And their approaches to romantic relationships change dramatically after Altered States in the sense that where I feel like to me, a lot of his earlier films from Altered States and before kind of look at. A romantic relationship, especially a difficult one between equals, as this sort of challenging but transformative process. I think the relationships in his films, especially in Gothic, Crimes of Passion, and Lair the White Worm, sex almost becomes a tool of manipulation in a way that it's not in the earlier films. And become sort of weaponized in a weird way. Yeah. It's like in his earlier films, they're all about what we've been discussing all along. These people who don't fit into society and are sort of paving a new path for themselves, often through art, Mm -hmm. almost always through art. Yeah. But the films of the 80s, they don't, other than gothic, they don't really focus on artists anymore. And... No. They're outsider characters. Well,
0: Oscar Wilde uh, in Salome's Last Dance.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, that's true. But he's not quite It's not the same thing. No, it's not the same type of lead character. No. That Russell, like Russell doesn't seem to really identify with any of the lead characters in his 80s movies. Like They don't feel as personal. They no. feel like genre films that he's being paid to make yeah. and is bringing his sort of wild, imaginative style to.
0: Yeah, I would say that Salome's Last Dance feels like the personal film smuggled in.
1: And it also feels like a weird, low-budget, theatrical production. Really does. Yes, like yeah. it's like somebody brought their movie camera to a stage show.
0: Yeah. But it's beautifully rendered. I mean, it's, it, it, it does feel like the let's put on a show aspect of the opening of The Devils or the things that touch yeah. on The Boyfriend. Like It feels like weirdly intimate. And because it's one that I saw really at the beginning of my introduction to Ken Russell, it's always one that kind of stuck with me. But, but Which I, is
1: so weird because it's one that like as a huge fan of Oscar Wilde, it's mm-hmm. something that I tried to find for a while and had to track down a bootleg. Yeah.
0: You can find it on rarefilm.com has yeah. a high def transfer of it. So I think one does exist. Um, yes. So Last Dance just feels like the one that is the small scale. Well, if we make this cheap enough, can I use your Vestron money if I make Lair of the White Worm and Gothic and it'll make so many rentals, you know, video cassettes rentals with these horror movies, which is how it worked out. And I think The Rainbow also feels like that. I mean, that's the return to Lawrence. And that-
1: yeah, the, that, I feel like he has that whole strain in the late 80s and 90s which is those historical period set literary adaptations sort of made for TV feeling movies. Yeah. Have you seen horror lately or do you? Not in a while. I remember feeling conflicted about it. So I think he does this thing from maybe Crimes of Passion through to horror, Mm -hmm. where he takes that female character type from his earlier films Mm -hmm. and makes it a lot darker. And maybe this is a reflection of, you know, life under Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s becoming darker and more cynical. Mm -hmm. But it's like you have these female characters who in almost every single one of those 80s films that I've seen up to horror find a way to like weaponize their sexuality and they're sometimes overtly represented as antagonists like in Lair of the white worm oh,
0: very much that and, yeah
1: and like while i love that as a genre film it feels like he, so gothic is a movie that i almost wish he had made in the 70s because i love the idea of it mm-hmm. and it's it seems thematically so suited to him but it seems like he hates those characters.
0: They're not the most lovable bunch.
1: No. And so it's sort of hard to find a footing in some of those 80s films. And I think to me, this is also maybe the case with horror as well, where it's just like, what, how am I supposed to feel?
0: Yeah, well the thing with horror, I mean and and again like a lot of these are not coming from the pen of Ken Russell himself. And horror yeah. comes from a stage show that had a different title, Bondage was the was was the play, I think. But horror was one of the first ones I forget if I said this when I was talking about my initial exposure to Ken Russell. I think I saw Horror before I even saw Salome's Last Dance, but I saw it with that's no knowledge crazy. before with no knowledge of who Ken Russell was and it was just kind of like it's kind of like renting basic instinct with your friends which is like you know it, it, it's just seeing something that's like a new controversial titillating Well, it's
1: sort of like how I saw Tommy. Yeah. Like, just as sort of a surreal rock opera no idea of who the director was yeah
0: horror comes at the same period as like Wild Orchid and Cook Thief is Wife and Her Lover Time Me Up, Time Me Down Henry Ports of Serial Killer like all these initial films that were like controversial for their ratings board run-ins yeah. they're either coming out unrated or with this new NC-17 rating and so for some reason I grouped them all in my head together because at the age I was these were all films that were running into similar problems as far as censorship
1: yeah so. and, and all that sexual content
0: yeah, and we should just note that Crimes of Passion was heavily cut when it came out theatrically, but was one of probably one of the earlier, now unrated, uncut, on-home video releases in the early days of the VHS boom. It was such a big hit on video that that kind of opened the door for the Vestron era of gothic and uh, Laird the White Worm and Salome's Last Dance. But that's another one that feels like an exploitation
1: movie. And oh, yeah. definitely, like... Yes, feels like a genre film, but also feels kind of still shocking and uncomfortable at
0: times. Which one? Crimes of Passion? Yeah. Oh, sure. And Crimes of Passion anticipates Blue Velvet in a big way. Oh, yeah. But back to horror, because I rewatched horror for the first time since I saw it as a kid, so it was practically a new film to me. This time around, it felt like to me, I don't know how you feel about this comparison, because I know we're both fans of it. We just saw it recently on the big screen. uh, Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom feels like This sleazy, sordid closing of the mainstream or popular career of a a major English filmmaker, Michael Powell, because Peeping Tom famously made him a kind of professional pariah. And he still worked and made other great films afterwards, but he was never really embraced by the establishment. uh, Yeah, yeah.
1: he he wasn't viewed as like... English wunderkind director, it was like, who is this dirty old man?
0: Exactly. And Hoare, I mean, Ken Russell had already ruffled feathers for t- 30 years at that point. So he was not exactly like losing it. Ken Russell made something shocking. Like, like it wasn't like that, but it was... Distasteful. It, it, was, it was like him making a film about real, like the real if- experiences of prostitution on the streets of uh, on the streets of a city with club music, with profanity, with for Ken Russell, a kind of gritty realism that seems very different from the kind of thing that you think of him for. You look at it now, and it looks stylized the same way Peeping Tom feels so stylized to me. But yeah. for w- what you thought of them at the time, they felt like gutter, sewer kind of films to the audiences that initially saw them that were comparing them to the more polished, pretty movies. That they've aged into Interestingly, because you can see them for what they are now, and they are very composed and very thought through and very bold films, but they they seem to mark similar kind of closing of the doors professionally in a way. Because after *Horror*, Ken Russell still works for a long time, almost fifteen was it another fifteen twenty years or something like that?
1: Yeah, into I think two thousand nine. Nine, yes. Yeah. With sh- some short films, but I think yeah. And but still, that's a really long career.
0: That's a really long career. I mean, and I looked at almost all of the things I... Well, he made other films like Dog Boys and uh, Mindbender, the Yuri Geller film, the Lady Chatterley mean, I watch all of it for this. Wow. Um, and, I, you know, it's its own conversation, like, as far as what happened. But I would just say that I think after horror, I don't know that his love for every one of those projects... Is, is apparent, if at all. I think sometimes he's taking things because he's got to keep working. I know that after uh, a production of Treasure Island for TV, he uh, had a stroke, and so he was not really insurable uh, for feature film work yeah. in England. So he he was running into like either movie jail problems in the U.S., insurance problems in the U.K., and I think he was... Taking opportunities when they presented themselves, like if something come up like for showtime, great. If something come up in an anthology film like Trapped Ashes, where you gotta co-direct yeah. with Joe Dante and Sean Cunningham, great. And he'll make something good. I mean his segment in Trapped Ashes is actually pretty funny, but it's it's a case where he's he's so far out of fashion. I mean, people are still kind of catching up to things like The Devils. He doesn't have the same resurgence of interest that... I, mean, I think about people coming back from the brink, like Zhivovsky with Cosmos, or Hodorowsky with his later films. Um, i trying to think of other comeback examples. People that were like hot in the 70s and 80s ran into real difficulties when they were no longer, you know, finger on the pulse with young people.
1: Yeah. I always think about Verhoeven as this weird outlier counterexample who made interesting films in the 70s and 80s that feel like yeah. really personal art films. And then when everybody else was struggling to get funding, he was making fucking showgirls and basic instinct and and like all these hollywood blockbusters where it's like how did how did you crack the code he's he never lost it. he
0: never lost it and he can still come back with something like l that is like in conversation with his most shocking powerful 70s work i think
1: oh totally agreed and i think where i get a little discomfort with russell's 80s and into the 90s work is when he gets interested in these female sex worker characters, it feels like it has not aged well. Whereas I feel like Verhoeven is one of the rare examples of male directors who has consistently made films about female sex workers or women in these sort of sexually transgressive situations for his whole career. And they never feel cringy. Yeah. Like, I love Crimes of Passion, and I remember thinking that horror was interesting, but also feeling like,
0: uh... Horror is interesting. Horror is not a film that you would put on if you're in a Ken Russell mood. It almost sure. feels like it stands apart from the earlier films and the later films. It's it's a very curious film. It, it actually has a great... Um, imprint blu-ray now which which i'll have um, to
1: rewatch it yeah
0: it's maybe where i would say you can hop off the train unless you are really a diehard family although i unless you're really into shot on video
1: hanging out in the backyard
0: yeah well i did watch some of that stuff like the fall of house i fall watched of Louse of Usher. some of
1: that thank you for sending it to me and yeah and it's it's like hard to hate it because if you love him he's just like on camera Having a good time. He clearly looks so happy to be making so it. So happy. It's it's hard to hate. Yeah, you can't hate it. But it's definitely. I if somebody said, "Oh, I'm going to watch Fall the Loss of Usher" as my first Ken Russell movie, no, I would it's be not like, where you start.
0: No, <laughs> no, it's it's weird because it, he. I know we can wrap this up, but he embraced the cheaper, more freedom-affording technology that he had, and he basically made films with friends and family on the property,
1: which I. I honestly love the way his career ended and the way his life ended. Like, he, you know, he kept getting to make these films, even if they aren't on the same level as his 70s work. Yeah. And seemed so grateful that at the end of his life, there's this big sort of fan reappraisal with all these film festivals. Yeah. He just. Seemed like he was having the best time. Like, let's start the
0: show. Yes, he did that when I saw him see the devils. When I saw the music lovers with him in attendance, uh, I I took a woman I was dating who didn't get it. But every few minutes, anytime anytime there was a a beautiful (laughs) shot or like crazy moment, the entire audience burst into spontaneous applause that was like, like as if it had just been performed for us in person. And she would look at me like, uh, she just didn't understand like like everybody was like clearly in heaven, and she, if you don't understand that movie, it's just gonna be even weirder when everyone is like rapturously receiving individual moments with loud applause, but that's, that's so that's, wonderful, but that's though. how. It, uh, that's how I experienced those films. He, um, I think, he knew that people were fighting to get the devils out there. People like Mark Kermode were very public champions of it. And I think I always wondered, like, what would have happened had like somebody entrusted him with even the Cosmos kind of budget again, if he even wanted that, because I don't think that. Uh, I mean, he seems to, like to have been joyfully making films with was it Lee C. Russell, his his last wife. Yeah who was an actress for him and And a great supporter of his career and just like kind anytime
1: i've ever interacted with her on facebook probably the nicest person on
0: facebook and and
1: honestly like the type of person where if she was following you and like i i think somebody shared with her some of the diabolique articles i
0: wrote and just always so
1: happy for his work to get
0: attention yeah just she apparently came to him as a fan that wrote to him and then became a collaborator, and not just as an actress, but as writing the short film stuff with Which him too. Which is just and music. Great. And I bet it was like a really happy couple of final years. Like it not Like I mean, when they talk about like the career of Ken Russell going to this like very small scale place with these films that have never really enjoyed any critical reevaluation, and and, and I'm, 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 I wish that we could change that, but we're not going to be those people. But like part two, part two. But like <laughs> One he, day. He, But he's somebody that I think was making things that made him happy to the end which Which is is honestly like what more can you ask for you can and plus he knew that he he had several films that he knew were having lasting cultural impact not just Tommy but even the devils I mean you know oh
1: yeah and deservedly so
0: yeah so I guess I guess we can wrap this up because I mean it's very easy to go like 10 hours with these things if we went deep into all the films from the 80s on but um, do you have a uh, do you have a top three? I know sometimes Jim likes top threes. Do you have a three favorites for Ken Russell?
1: I guess my top three would probably be Mahler, for sure. Mm-hmm. I have to say the devils, I'm contractually obligated. Yeah, no, no. Um and I wanna say probably the music lovers, but I I do, you know really need to wrap my head around the boyfriend more because i can't believe it took me so long to see and how much i loved it yeah but i also need to strongly encourage people to watch those early films like the debussy film and bartok
0: yeah i'm sorry
1: i went i went beyond no no
0: i mean he's got like 50 years of credit so you gotta you know i mean you gotta give shout out to yeah i mean uh the Song of Summer is really great. I mean Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, but my top three would be your top three. I think I I think I'd go God, I mean, it just it depends on the day. Mahler, but Music Lover, and The Devils are the, are the ones that I love the most. But I know we didn't go in-depth on things like Crimes of Passion and Lair of White Worm and Gothic and uh, Altered States. But I I think that all of those films, even things that we don't, like, go into, like, The Rainbow or la- That Lady Chatterley's Lover miniseries, I thought it was okay for what it was. I, I need to see it. I
1: have a soft spot for period-set literary adaptations. Yeah. So I'll send you the films. <laughs> I'll, I'll clone myself so yeah. I have time
0: <laughs> Alright well everyone uh, Thank you so much for listening to us Talk about Ken Russell Thank you Sam for talking to me about Ken Russell today
1: Yeah likewise It's always an honor to talk about him